This is a recording of According to the Spirit of Revelation and Prophecy, Alma's Prophetic Warning of Christ's Coming to the Lehites and Others by Scott Stenson Published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship Read by Victor Worth Abstract Some students of the Book of Mormon have felt that while the coming of the Lord to the Lehites was clearly revealed to and taught by Nephi 1, those prophecies having to do with the subject may not have been widely circulated or continuously preserved among the Nephites, while others have argued for continuity of knowledge about Nephi 1's prophecies among writers and their contemporary audiences. Reexamination of the Book of Mormon in light of these issues reveals that the teaching that Christ would appear among the Lehites was actually taught with some consistency by Alma too, and was, it would seem, common knowledge among the Nephites. It appears that the predicted coming was well established, even if the nature of it was not. Specifically, I argue that Alma too often taught of the coming of Christ to the Lehites, but in context with other events, such as Jesus coming to the Jews and to others not of the known fold. To make this case, I concentrate on Alma II's writings, especially those in Alma 5, borrowing liberally also from Alma 7, 13, 16, 39, Helaman 16, 4 through 5, 13 through 14, and 3 Nephi 8 through 10. Alma 5 houses many prophetic statements that urgently point to the coming of the Lord to the Nephite church. The value of this approach is to attempt to demonstrate that Alma 5 contains more than has been supposed and, in effect, challenges claims for discontinuity in the middle portion of the Nephite record. This approach should tend to renew our interest in the other nuanced teachings of the prophet Alma 2 and others. Yea, thus saith the Spirit, Repent, all ye ends of the earth, for the kingdom of heaven is soon at hand. Yea, the Son of God cometh in his glory, in his might, majesty, power, and dominion. Yea, my beloved brethren, I say unto you that the Spirit saith, Behold, the glory of the King of all the earth, and also the King of heaven, shall very soon shine forth among all the children of men. Alma 5.50 This representative passage above from Alma II's sermon at Zarahemla is taken from the middle portion of the Book of Mormon. It is one of many such passages. It demonstrates that the anticipated coming of the Lord, an important subject to Nephite believers, was nevertheless a complex doctrine with implications beyond Jesus' birth, life, and atoning sacrifice. This scripture suggests that the Son of God, Alma 5.50, whom Alma II in the same sermon repeatedly refers to as the Good Shepherd, would personally minister, quote, shine forth among the children of men, close quote, unto many peoples, some of whom had been prepared by intense prophetic and angelic activity to receive him and his word or voice. Alma 5, 38 through 39, 41, 57, 60. Alma II himself urgently prepares, quote, his people, close quote, for the approaching event, Alma 5.51. Indeed, the Lord's semi-universal first coming to the earth, semi-universal refers to his ministry after the resurrection to other select peoples around the earth, including the Nephites and Lamanites. 
is described at points like the universal second coming itself, full of power and glory. Alma 13, 24, verses taken from Alma 2's contemporary teachings to Ammonihah, demonstrate certain factors potentially affecting our understanding of this significant subject. In Alma 13, we learn that angels were visiting all nations before the Lord was born among the Jews. Alma 13.22, see also Alma 10.20-21. We learn that the Nephites were not only apprised of Jesus' pending coming among the Jews and his redemption for all men, the glad tidings, but also that he would come, quote, among all his people, yea, even to them that are scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. Alma 13.22. They would receive from him his, quote, word at the time of his coming in his resurrected glory. Alma 13.22 and 24. Alma's teachings are consistent with Nephi's and Zenos's, but surprisingly may reach even further than his focus on the Lord's coming to the seed of Lehi. Alma's prophecies concerning the coming of the Lord to the Lehites and others are the subject of this paper. I will suggest that the small plates of Nephi correspond with and thus may have influenced Alma's teachings on this subject. Alma may have been introduced to the subject through the many records his people inherited. It likely also belonged to Nephite oral tradition, but it seems to have been spiritually confirmed to him by the Holy Spirit of God, Alma 546. Here it is my primary claim that these truths were generally known by Alma and his people. And yet he sought to better understand them that he might prepare his people for Christ's coming to them. He came to understand certain related truths for himself, it would seem, by cultivating the spirit of revelation and prophecy. Although Alma powerfully taught the urgency of preparing for the Lord's visit to them, he does not appear to know exactly when or how it would occur. The event, it seems, was anticipated by the faithful, but no one can explain it with precision. This ambiguity around the precise nature of the predicted event may account for why the subject was not more frequently and plainly referenced after Nephi. A secondary objective of this study will be to demonstrate using scriptures attributed to Alma and others, see Alma 5, 7, 13, 16, 39, Helaman 16, 4-5, 13 through 14, and 3rd Nephi 8 through 10, the semi-universal nature of the Lord's ministry in the first century. Alma appears to teach the post-resurrection ministry of Christ better than anyone, including Nephi, before the other sheep doctrine is clearly expounded in 3rd Nephi 15. In short, I argue for doctrinal continuity between at least Nephi and Alma, if not also through 3rd Nephi 11. Alma possessed in great measure what he termed the spirit of revelation and prophecy, Alma 4.20. His initial sermons in the Book of Mormon are bracketed by the idea, Alma 4.20, Alma 43.2. The Holy Spirit often inspired Alma, opening his mouth that he might declare the truth in the present and prophesy of the future. His sermons are among the most fascinating and intricate in Scripture. Most of them appear in the first half of the Book of Alma, where the editor and historian, Mormon, appears to provide them to his audience without much commentary. Significantly, each of them touches on the coming of Christ. 
but none perhaps as powerfully as that found in Alma 5. In Mosiah 27, we first encounter the newly converted Alma as he comforts his father and confesses his sins to those persons assembled after the stunning visitation and exhortation of the angel to him and the sons of Mosiah. In Alma 5-14, we see Alma urgently admonish the Nephites in Zarahemla, Alma 5, Gideon, Alma 7, and Ammonihah, Alma 9, 8-30, 12-2, 12-3-13-30, to repent and be born again. In Alma 32-8-33-23, we find his discourse to the poor in heart among the Zoramites. In Alma 36-42, we discover his fatherly counsel to his three sons, Helaman, Alma 36-37, Shivlon, Alma 38, and Corianton, Alma 39-42. Although this is not an exhaustive accounting of all of Alma's experiences and words in the Book of Mormon, this summary situates some of his most important teachings and prophecies. These recorded sermons and prophecies are remarkably textured and nuanced. Each one is grounded in the written word of God and presumably in the oral teachings of the Nephite fathers. And yet they, as indicated, may expand certain doctrinal subjects even further. Like King Benjamin, Alma was custodian of the Nephite records and national artifacts, including the small plates of Nephi. Whether these plates were seamlessly transmitted from Nephi to later writers, those of the middle period of the Book of Mormon, has been a point of discussion among scholars, one not without important interpretive implications. At least one scholar has advocated for continuity, while many others have perceived discontinuity in the transmission of scriptural records, and thus in the transmission of doctrine. This second perspective is the more commonly held view, and has much merit. Specifically, Matthew Roper favors basic continuity. Those who advocate for discontinuity include Brent Metcalf, Rebecca Rosler, Grant Hardy, and others. I suggest, not unlike Roper, that the case for discontinuity of transmission bears the greater burden of proof. Roper asserts that the Book of Mormon clearly teaches that Christ's coming to the Lehites was known and taught by Alma during the middle period of the Book of Mormon. In some deference to those persons who subscribe to discontinuity, a claim that in no way threatens the veracity of the Nephite record, I am less confident in the straightforwardness of the record than Roper appears to be. Continuity is present, but in certain places must be teased out by a close reading. Thus, I differ from Roper and the others in at least three ways. 1. Although I accept the continuity claim, I am less sure that continuity is as obviously manifest as Roper indicates. 2. My effort is to suggest that Alma 5 is a text that demonstrates both continuity and Alma's further search for a more refined and expanded understanding. Roper does not explore Alma 5, though he cites it. And 3. I assert that Alma's apparent confusion or reticence, in part, stems from his strong sense that the prophecies touch on more than the Lord's life in Palestine, even reaching perhaps beyond his own land. The prophecies describe the coming of the Lord in the first century in a complex and even somewhat universal way. This argument for Alma's sense of a semi-universal coming and the enigmatic times and seasons associated with it 
appear to have led Alma to wonder about those truths his fathers had taught about Christ's coming to the Jews, to them and perhaps to others. The case for discontinuity. Those scholars who subscribe to discontinuity cite problem passages such as those below. In general, the argument for discontinuity understands the relative silence of the Book of Mormon text after Nephi as grounds for suggesting the loss of the small plates of Nephi or the neglect of them during the middle portion of the Book of Mormon. For instance, Rosler, in her response to the debate between Metcalf and Roper and their schools of thought, seems to confuse the content of some of the passages she cites. For example, she writes, quote, He, Alma 2, does not know when Christ would come, Alma 13.25, how the event would happen, Alma 7.8, or details as to the timing of the resurrection, Alma 44-5. But the lack of specific knowledge of timing shown in Alma 44-5 is about the distant future event when, quote, all shall come forth from the dead, Alma 44, not the resurrection of Christ. Alma's uncertainty in Alma 7-8, discussed hereafter, is not about the timing of Christ's birth, but about whether or not Christ's coming to the Lehites would be during his mortal life. Alma 13.25 is given emphasis in Rosler's arguments for discontinuity as she later discusses Nephi's 600-year prophecy, presumably about the birth of Christ, then quotes Alma 13.25 and concludes, quote, if Alma searched the records available to him, he makes no indication of it. Close quote. She assumes Alma 13.25 is about the birth of Christ, but as with the other arguments for discontinuity, this is not supported by the cited verse. For the previous verse, Alma 13.24 gives context that contradicts Russell's interpretation. Quote, for behold, angels are declaring it, the day of salvation, unto many at this time in our land. And this is for the purpose of preparing the hearts of the children of men to receive his word at the time of his coming in his glory. And now we only await to hear the joyful news declared unto us by the mouth of angels of his, actual, coming. For the time cometh we know not how soon. Would to God it would be in my day. But let it be sooner or later, in it I will rejoice. Alma 13, 24-25 the coming of Christ that Alma is looking forward to is not his humble birth, but his coming in his glory. Apparently, a glorious post-resurrection visitation has described in Third Nephi, for which the people, quote, in our Nephite land, close quote, would need to be prepared so that they could receive Christ's word at that time. While the timing of the birth of Christ was prophesied by Nephi, there was not a specific time given for his death resurrection, or post-resurrection ministry. Alma's unawareness of the details in timing for those events, however, does not imply ignorance of the small plates. Rosler claims that Alma does not understand the coming of the Lord to the Lehites until Alma 16.20. The problem is that he has alluded to it since at least Alma 5. Moreover, Alma 5-16 is a block of scripture that may be read as one chronological unit. Alma's tour of the church to regulate its congregations. Rosler seems to read Alma 37 and Alma 40 from a latter-day perspective. However, Alma 37:10 through 12 appears to refer to a non-latter-day work among the Lamanites. 
she judges Alma 40 in light of her knowledge of the doctrines involved. In short, Alma understands the records and the resurrection, but is disabusing his son's mind about doctrinal complexities he has apparently encountered while among the Zoramites. Rosso does make many excellent points in her argument about variation, complexity, and development, but in the end does not establish discontinuity. Indeed, she neglects some textual evidence for continuity, even as she cites passages in support of a claim. For example, Alma 37 directly alludes to 1 Nephi 5 and the small plates record, as I will discuss later. Roslot accounts for the allusion by speculating about what was on the large plates of Nephi and what must have belonged to the oral tradition. Ultimately, it does not matter how doctrines came down to Alma, as long as he more or less had them. Continuity is continuity. Those who argue for continuity find it hard to set aside the passages that positively address the subject after Nephi, some rather plainly. In what follows, then, I will briefly address these before moving forward. Items 3 and 4 on the list below come after Alma's writings, and therefore are not of great concern here, although I will offer some suggestions that may begin to answer those understandable objections. Even though I subscribe to continuity, I fully acknowledge that the character of the Book of Mormon on this subject of the Lord's coming to the Lehites is a messy business. Here are some of the most common concerns about continuity phrased as questions. 1. Why would Nephi's and Lehi's plain prophecies that the Lord would come to earth 600 years from the time of their departure from Jerusalem not be used after Nephi's writing if the small plates were passed down and widely circulated? See 1 Nephi 10.4, 1 Nephi 19.8, 2 Nephi 25.19. 2. Why does Alma suggest that he does not know whether the Lord will come to them, given how plain Nephi was on the matter? He reportedly says this in Alma 7.8, As to this thing, whether Christ will come to his people or not, I do not know. Alma then exhorts the people of Gideon to, quote, Repent and prepare the way of the Lord, for behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the Son of God cometh upon the face of the earth. Alma 7.9 The statement that, quote, The Son of God cometh upon the face of the earth, close quote, is ambivalent. Exactly how will he come and to whom? 3. Why would Mormon describe the people in Helaman 16.18-20 through 20, about the time of Samuel the Lamanite, as though they were not aware of the Lord's coming to them. 4. Why would the people gathered near the temple of Bountiful mistake Jesus for an angel at his coming, if they were aware of the prophecies concerning his coming to them? See 3 Nephi 11.8. With such questions before us, it may be wise to acknowledge that the, quote, Book of Mormon story is not structured around a straightforward expectation of Christ's post-resurrection appearance among the Nephites, close quote, as Grant Hardy claims. But as I will demonstrate, there is discernible continuity across the middle portion of the Nephite record. Granted, these passages can be easily misunderstood. Nevertheless, I believe that they may be at least partially explained. As mentioned, though, I make only a partial attempt here to answer the concerns that have to do with the Nephite expectation of the Lord's visit after Alma i.e. Helaman 16, 18-20, and 3 Nephi 11, 8-12. I do this to keep the focus on Alma, 
and so that this project does not get too lengthy. Finally, it may very well be that a conscientiousness of those prophecies anticipating the Lord's coming to the Nephites waned during the decades of greatest conflict and wickedness after Alma, but before the Lord's coming to Bountiful. That may be the case, but that is not my sense of it for the following reasons. The 600 Years Prophecy The 600 Years Prophecy appears three times in the Book of Mormon, and all references to it are located in Nephi's writings. See 1 Nephi 10.4, 1 Nephi 19.8, and 2 Nephi 25.19. For good reason, then, this has led the scholars advocating discontinuity to assume that knowledge of this category of prophecy, those referencing the 600 years, was lost to the Nephites sometime after Nephi's day. Indeed, other writings after Nephi who speak of Christ's coming do not seem to be aware of it, or at least they do not allude to it. The 600 years prophecy, however, anticipates the coming of Christ, quote, among the Jews, close quote, and as indicated, may or may not refer to the birth of the Lord. One wonders if this language is a reference to the Lord's birth or to his ministry. There is nothing in the phrase, raise up, that suggests it should refer to Christ's birth instead of the time of his ministry. If the Nephites were not sure what specifically was to occur after 600 years, the prophecy becomes much less useful for advocates of discontinuity. Nephi reports at the beginning of his own account that his father declared the following concerning the Jews in Jerusalem. Quote, Yea, even 600 years from the time that my father left Jerusalem, a prophet would the Lord raise up among the Jews, even a Messiah, or in other words, a Savior of the world. And he, Lehi, spake also concerning a prophet, John the Baptist, who should come before the Messiah to prepare the way of the Lord. Yea, even he should go forth and cry in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make his paths straight. For there standeth one among you, whom ye know not, and he is mightier than I, whose shoes latchet I am unworthy to unloose. And much spake my father concerning this thing. First Nephi 10, 4, and 7 through 8. This same prophecy is referenced again in 1 Nephi 19.8 and 2 Nephi 25.19. It marks time from the departure of Lehi from Jerusalem, specific point in time, until the time a prophet would the Lord God raise up among the Jews, not citing the number of years or any other specific indicators of time. To use this prophecy to mark the coming of the Lord to the Lehites seems to be problematic at best since neither Nephi nor his prophetic successors become specific about the timing of that separate event. The chronological relationship between the Lord's coming to the Lehites and the raising up of a prophet among the Jews is not discussed in the Book of Mormon. Nevertheless, why the later writers of the Book of Mormon after Nephi do not reference this 600 years prophecy directly is still an open question but not one that negates the multiple predictions of the Lord's coming to the Lehites found after Nephi. Alma 7, 8 Similarly, the scholars espousing discontinuity have, in my judgment, misappropriated Alma 7, 8. Alma 7, 8 is one of the best examples of complexity within the text over this issue of the Lord's coming to the Jews as opposed to the Lehites. Citing Alma 7, 8, for instance, Hardy asserts that even though Nephi had plainly and repeatedly announced that the Lord 
would come to his own people some five times, Alma, quote, does not know whether Jesus will come to the Nephites, close quote. Hardy says, quote, he, Alma, later receives a revelation that this would be the case, Alma 45.10, close quote. Rosler places this revelatory shift in Alma's paradigm at Alma 16. However, it becomes apparent that Hardy and Rosler have, for the sake of argument, chosen to overlook an important theological qualifier in Alma 7.8. Alma has not said, quote, I do not say that he, Jesus, will come among us, close quote, but he has characteristically clarified the extent of his understanding using these words, quote, I do not say that he, Jesus, will come among us at the time of his dwelling in his mortal tabernacle. The qualifying phrase, at the time of his dwelling in his mortal tabernacle, implies that Jesus, from Alma's perspective, may come before or after that time, but likely not while he is tabernacled in mortal clay. Nevertheless, this qualifying detail with doctrinal implications is only of secondary importance in the passage, though of primary importance in this argument. While in Gideon, Alma has already clearly announced that there is, quote, one thing of more importance than they all, close quote. Using this language, he indirectly refers to that which the Lord will perform, quote, among his people, the Jews, close quote, the blood atonement and resurrection, Alma 7, 6 through 7, 10 through 13. So in Alma 7, 8, Alma alludes to his knowledge of the Lord's coming to Alma's own people, even as he emphasizes Jesus' coming to the Jews. Alma 7.8 gives us a glimpse into Alma's potential gaps in doctrinal understanding. That is, Alma is aware of the Lord's coming to his people, the Nephites, but he does not seem secure in his sense of its exact timing and nature. Thus, rather than say that the text is disjointed or disorienting, that is right to an extent, it might be more helpful to say that the qualifier in Alma 7.8 and its immediate context should be carefully considered. In Alma 7.9, for example, the very next verse, we learn that Alma, who has spoken of the coming of the Lord to the Jews and has alluded to the Lord's coming to Alma's own people before or after Jesus' ministry among them in the flesh, has been commanded to, quote, cry unto this people, his own people, saying, Repent ye, and prepare the way of the Lord, and walk in his paths which are straight. For behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the Son of God cometh upon the face of the earth. Thus, Alma underscores Jesus' coming to the Jews, alludes to his coming to his, Alma's, people, and the urgent necessity thereof, and perhaps leaves the door open for the Lord's post-resurrection ministry to extend even further. Alma 7.8, which according to some appears not to teach the coming of the Lord to the seed of Lehi, actually may allude to that, plus push the doctrine even further, since Jesus would minister, quote, upon the face of the earth, close quote, which may allow for a wider scope than we have supposed. In contrast to Hardy and Rosler, then, I suggest that Alma began his faithful inquiry into the doctrinal nuances of the coming of the Lord sometime after his conversion in Mosiah 27, but sometime before Alma 5. It is in Alma 5 that he references fasting and praying for an understanding of the teachings of his fathers. 
he had presumably understood his father's prophetic teachings intellectually for some time. But he says that he came to know, quote, of myself, close quote, and by the, quote, Holy Spirit of God, close quote, what he had not yet spiritually understood, Alma 5.45-47. This is not to say that Alma, at the time he records Alma 5, has already received a fullness of knowledge concerning his father's teachings. But it appears that he has come to understand for himself that Christ comes not only to the Jews to make atonement for all men, but to his people, though he cannot say when or how that event will occur even after Alma 5. Helaman 16 Helaman 16 poses some interpretive problems that are more formidable for scholars who subscribe to continuity. While Roper does not address this chapter, I believe that it may also be explained in a way that reasonably supports the claim of continuity. First, a word on the book of Helaman and the teachings of Samuel the Lamanite. Helaman, as Hardy has noted, is patterned in part after the book of Alma. That is, Mormon narratively patterns later accounts after earlier accounts. This creates unity in the record and some degree of consistency. It does not remove all complexity, however. To the contrary, it may actually create variation and complexity because it is an abridged and edited work. In Alma 5-16, through 16, the Nephite church dwindles and Alma travels forth with others to strengthen it. Similarly, in Helaman, the church declines and Nephi 2 and Lehi 2 and others, including Samuel the Lamanite, travel to preach and prophesy. Nephi, too, relinquishes his role as judge, just as Alma did. Both accounts have dramatic prison scenes, etc. Second, Samuel, instructed and sent forth by an angel, ministers to Zarahemla and Gideon, as did Alma. His second sermon from the wall is prophetically eclectic. This may be because he speaks from the heart without prepared remarks, and we do not have the full account. Samuel speaks in turn of Zarahemla's destruction by fire in not many years if the Nephites do not repent, and of their utter destruction within 400 years. Samuel speaks of the signs of the Lord's birth and death, but in doing so alludes to Nephi's, Zenus's, teaching on the other sheep. That is, Samuel converts the imagery of thunder and lightning, imagery found in 1 Nephi 19, 10-12, 2 Nephi 26, 3 through 9, 3 Nephi 8 through 10. From the middle part of his message, Helaman 14, 20 through 29, to the latter-day theme of the restoration of the Lamanites, a favorite subject of Nephi 1 and Jacob on the small plates. Perhaps reciting Nephi's or Zenus's words in proximity to Samuel's would help to establish the connection between the prophets and the doctrine. 1 Nephi 19, 11-12 For thus spake the prophet, The Lord God surely shall visit all the house of Israel at that day, when the sign of darkness is manifest unto those of the house of Israel, scattered like so many sheep upon the isles of the sea, some with his voice, because of their righteousness, unto their great joy and salvation, and others with the thunderings and lightnings of his power, by tempest, by fire, and by smoke, and vapor of darkness, and by the opening of the earth. And all these things must surely come, saith the prophet Zenos, and the rocks of the earth must rend. Helaman 14, 20-22 20 
But behold, as I said concerning another sign, a sign of his death, behold, in that day that he shall suffer death, the sun shall be darkened and refuse to give his light unto you. Yea, at the time that he, the Lord, shall yield up the ghost, there shall be thunderings and lightnings for the space of many hours. And the earth shall shake and tremble, and the rocks which are upon the face of this earth, which are both above the earth and beneath, which ye know at this time are solid, or the more part of it, rocky face of the earth, one solid mass, shall be broken up. Yea, they, the rocks, shall be rent in twain. Although Samuel's image of thunder and lightning and rending of the rocks of the earth is more in-depth than Nephi is offering to us of Zenos' writing on the subject, it is hard to miss the similarities. Each passage refers to that day, the sign of darkness, the thunderings and lightnings, and the rending of the rocks. Mormon, as we will see later, employs the same imagery, thus compelling us to connect the prophecies, past and present, to their fulfillment at the time of Christ's coming to the Lehites. Samuel appears to have been influenced by either Nephi or Zenos, or both, in his use of this imagery. All of this was fulfilled, as Mormon relates later, in 3 Nephi 8-10. through That said, Helaman 16 appears to contradict the argument for continuity. In it, unbelievers seem unaware of any prophecy about the coming of the Lord in their lands. As I understand Mormon's account, the so-called problem passage in Helaman 16, 18-20 not only strongly alludes to Nephi's writings and prefigures the account of 3 Nephi, but it cites the view of unbelievers as opposed to faithful and informed members of the Nephite church. There were some righteous persons in Zarahemla, quote, this great city, close quote, who would yet be preserved, quote, them will I spare, close quote, from, quote, fire which should come down out of heaven, see Helaman 12, 12-14. The unbelievers undoubtedly were not as familiar with the various prophecies as the believers, much as unbelievers to this day have a tendency to misunderstand and misrepresent the beliefs of Latter-day Saints. For instance, how many unbelievers in our day understand the scriptural prophecy that the Lord will come to a great gathering at Adam and Diamond, as in Doctrine and Covenants 116? They had rejected the spirit of prophecy by which recorded prophecy is understood. Helaman 4, 12, and 23. In Helaman 16, the unbelievers all but admit that they are ignorant of the scriptures and prophecies. They say, quote, We are servants to their, our teachers, words, close quote. Quote, For we depend on them to teach us the word. Helaman 16:21. Once the unbelievers have made their case that the tradition that Christ is coming is a wicked one, Hillman 16.20, they reason that if he should come to the Jews, they seem to understand this much, even if they do not believe it, then why will he not minister also to us? Hillman 16.18-20 That the wicked in Hillman 16.18-20 should presuppose that the Lord would not come unto the Nephites is interesting, but hardly disqualifying since they also advocate other erroneous ideas that have been in circulation since at least the time of Korahor, contemporary with Alma. In his attack on the Nephite church, Korahor, an antichrist, or man against messianic prophecy, uses a similar line of reasoning. He claims that Alma and his associates have kept the people down in ignorance due to their words. 
Alma 30.23, that they might, quote, glut themselves upon the labor of this people, Alma 30.27.31-32. This fabrication Korahor has concocted because he is possessed of a lying spirit, having before, quote, put off the spirit of God, Alma 30.42. Korahor, a zealous antagonist of all true prophecy, says that the church follows, quote, the silly traditions of their fathers, close quote, concerning Christ's coming, Alma 30.31. He needles the Nephites accordingly, quote, Why do ye yoke yourselves with such foolish things? Why do ye look for a Christ? For no man can know of anything which is to come, Alma 30.13. However, the account makes it clear that Korahor's teachings, teachings imparted to him by a false angel, were a clever perversion of the truths contained in the prophecies. Like the people of Samuel's day, Korahor would not believe in what he could not see. His method of deception, much as theirs may have been, was to use half-truths to confuse the people about the fundamental teachings of the church. The material point here is that this apparent apostate turned atheist, with a particular hostility to prophecy, utterly misrepresents the doctrines of the Nephite church and its leaders in the decades before the Lord's coming to earth. Interestingly, Alma's response to Korahor's campaign of confusion, misrepresentation, and lying was to ask a few simple questions. It was a question also asked by the high priests in Gideon, Alma 30.22. Once Korahor is brought to stand before him in Zarahemla, Alma reminds him of his relatively recent, quote, travels round about the land to declare the word of God, close quote. And then he sets the record straight as pertaining to the man's accusations or talking points, talking points he has come to believe for himself because of his repeated employment of them, Alma 30, 53. Quote, now if we, Alma and his brethren of the church, do not receive anything for our labors in the church, what doth it profit us to labor in the church, save it were to declare the truth that we may have rejoicings in the joy of our brethren. Then, Alma asks his interlocutor, Why sayest thou that we preach unto this people to get gain, when thou of thyself knowest that we receive no gain? And now believest thou that we deceive this people that causes such joy in their hearts? Alma 30, 34-35 While raising these and other questions, Alma testifies that he knows Christ shall come, Alma 30.39, suggesting that the church's focus on the coming of Christ at that season was a source of great joy to the people of the Nephite church. The anticipation of the Lord's coming to earth presumably has created an unusual excitement among the church members, even though it is decades before the Lord actually arrives among them. They seem to anticipate his coming to the Jews, and given their great excitement and the nature of the prophecies that were available to them, they are particularly thrilled that the Lord will visit them. That Korahor has chosen to attack this righteous people's interest in the prophecies of Christ's coming is suggested that he believes, and Satan knows, that if he can cast doubt here, that he will succeed in his quest to destroy the work of God. The material above demonstrates that it is not disconcerting that the unbelievers in Samuel's day appear to teach concepts that contradict the prophecies as expounded through the generations by Alma and his fathers. Like Korahor, they have developed their talking points, 
and because of their repeated use, they, it would appear, have become integrated into their understanding, despite the believer's teachings and objections to the contrary. It is as if the unbelievers teach what they want to believe and have no interest in the spirit of truth. In Helaman 16, Mormon appears to include what he calls the, quote, foolish and vain, close quote, imaginations of the unbelievers, in their own words, to create a sense of dramatic irony in his narrative account. He is a historian, but he is also telling a story in a way that dramatizes the deception and ignorance of those who oppose the prophets and their words. Mormon seeks to prove that the word of prophecy is sure, and to demonstrate the manifest ignorance of the unbelievers who are not even aware of the ridiculous nature of their reasoning. It is admittedly less clear, however, why Samuel may not directly refer to the Lord's coming to them in Helaman 13-15. As indicated, he appears to have desired to do so, but when rejected, he returns with another message, one of destruction by fire if they do not repent. Samuel cries out of the people of Zarahemla, quote, Repent and prepare the way of the Lord, close quote, lest ye be, quote, hewn down and cast into the fire, Helaman 14.18. Here he speaks of the ultimate spiritual death. In many ways, his teachings anticipate the events of Third Nephi, even as they allude to the prophecies of that very coming. Samuel appears to be one of those just and holy men, that Alma said the Lord would send to prepare the way of the Lord closer to his coming, Alma 13.26. Finally, it should be remembered that we do not have all of Samuel's words. More importantly, we do not have his initial sermon when he spoke of glad tidings. We may get a glimpse of this initial material in Helaman 14.2-13. Third Nephi 11 In Third Nephi 11, 2 and 10, the multitude gathered at the temple were believers discussing the, quote, sign that had been given by the prophets, close quote, and were only temporarily confused at the descent of the angel figure who identified himself as, quote, Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world, close quote. This is not surprising, given, as I will demonstrate, that there had been much angelic activity in the land in preparation for the Lord's coming. The multitude's disorientation does not suggest that they were not aware of the Lord's eventual coming to them. The sign of three days of darkness and Jesus' resurrection, see 2 Nephi 26, 3 and 8, had been spoken of long before Samuel the Lamanite by Nephi, or Zenos, in context with the Lord's planned appearances to the house of Israel, see 1 Nephi 19, 10-11, also 2 Nephi 26, 3 and 8-9. through 9. As mentioned, Samuel had called upon these writings. He also gives the prophecies of the Lord's birth a temporal specificity, something Alma does not do. He declares that Christ will be born in, quote, five years, Hillman 14.2. It appears, though, that neither Alma nor Samuel has a clear sense of how and when he would visit them. The argument against continuity through the middle portion of the Book of Mormon largely rests on textual complexity and what Roper calls the, quote, argument from silence, close quote. Despite my defense of modified continuity, I can understand objections to the contrary given these problem passages. Because of Alma's regard for the written word and the oral teachings of his prophet fathers, 
It is admittedly odd that he and others on occasion can seem unaware of or somewhat confused about that which Nephi taught. See the passages just presented. There are many passages, some even long stretches of text, as we have seen, where the doctrine of the Lord's coming to the Lehites could be directly alluded to or plainly taught, but is not. See Alma 32-34 through 34, and Helaman 7-15. through 15. Hardy articulates the general position of those belonging to the school of discontinuity. He has observed Alma's and others seeming confusion or reluctance in this material concerning the coming of the Lord of the Lehites. This is his conclusion. Quote, Although the Book of Mormon contains some three dozen prophecies of Christ's coming, the vast majority concern his life in Palestine, that he would be born, receive baptism, work miracles, be slain for the sins of the world, and then rise from the dead. Only five passages indicate that his ministry would include a post-resurrection visit to the New World. Nephi had spoken plainly on the subject, 1 Nephi 12, 4-7, 2 Nephi 26, 1-9, and 32, 6. But these prophecies apparently did not have wide distribution. As late as 83 BC, Alma explicitly states that he does not know whether Jesus will come to the Nephites, Alma 7, 8. Though he later would receive a revelation that this would be the case, Alma 45, 10. And Mormon reports that other prophets at that time, quote, taught that he, Christ, would appear unto them after his resurrection, Alma 16.20, close quote from Hardy. The above passages from Nephi and the others that Hardy points to are not as plain as they would seem. Each passage suggests that Nephi taught his people that the Lord would visit them in the land of promise, while 1 Nephi 12.4-7 seems to describe a single visit after much destruction. 2 Nephi 26.1-9, a parallel passage, appears to reference two or three separate visits, or seasons, on the earth. 1. The day when the Messiah would undergo birth, death, resurrection. 2 Nephi 26.3 2. The day when the Messiah would come to the Lehites after his resurrection to show himself to them and instruct them. 2 Nephi 26.1 and three, a day that cometh as a destruction by fire and other natural forces. The last reference to the Lord's comings to his people says that he will come in the flesh, but does not disclose whether he, Jesus, will come in his mortal or resurrected flesh. Second Nephi 32.6 This complexity causes Alma, it would seem, to later seek to understand more perfectly about when and where and how these things were to take place. 2 Nephi 26.1 appears to be the clearest early declaration about the coming of the Lord to them. It seems that the time of Jesus' birth was known to the Nephites with some precision, but not the timing of his ministry to them. Hardy adds, quote, Some have seen in this disjunction evidence that Joseph Smith was inventing the story as he went along, with Nephi's predictions being so much clearer because his words were dictated after 3rd Nephi, had already been written. In any case, there was not a strong expectation of Christ's coming to the new world on anyone's part, even after the time of Alma. Quote. I will address this last statement in the next section of this argument. The claim for discontinuity, as indicated, has been put forth by Metcalf, Rosler, and Hardy. 
It turns out, though, that Alma seems not so much unaware of or confused about his father's teachings on the subject as that he tends to critically investigate the gaps in Nephite knowledge and thus struggles for finer understanding of the mysteries of God. Alma 12, 9-11. See also Alma 43. Accordingly, I do not merely attempt to push back against theories of discontinuity, but I suggest that the continuity is less than obvious, and yet I argue with Roper that it is discernibly present and verifiable, even, as Hardy and Rosler admit, relatively plain on occasion. See Alma 16.20 and Alma 45.10. Thus, my position on the question of continuity neither easily aligns with Roper, who believes that the continuity of the record is straightforward, nor does it sync well with those who believe in discontinuity. Accordingly, scholars have interpreted the absence of the 600 years prophecy from the record after Nephi and passages such as Alma 7.8 to mean that the Nephites did not know that the Lord would visit them at some point in their history. However, I have demonstrated here that this understanding is not as sound as it might be. Indeed, there are many passages, as I will demonstrate, that established the idea that the Nephites had a doctrine of visitation to them, and that it was taught far and wide from Nephi through Alma, and perhaps beyond. This is not to say that the passages involved are not difficult, and the Nephites taught the doctrine frequently and in specific terms. There is no evidence for that sort of claim. What the level of understanding was among those after Alma is less certain. The case for continuity. There's little doubt that Nephi and his successors expected continuity to occur. See Jacob 1, 1 through 3 and 8, Jacob 7, 27, Jerem 1, 1, and 3 Nephi 1, 2. There is no definitive evidence that continuity does not hold, and the theories to the contrary are, as yet, not only unsatisfying, but also unpersuasive, given the intriguing details of certain passages of Scripture, such as those we will examine. Indeed, Clifford P. Jones has recently made a convincing case for the strong influence of the small plates prophecies influencing Mormons and Moroni's writings. Roper treats the question of Alma's access to the small plates as a given. That is, he just assumes it. Jones makes a good case that the words of Mormon were not written after finding Nephi's small plates, but were found at the beginning of his work with the Book of Mosiah. Mormon then states, according to Jones, that he plans to use those small plates of Nephi to influence his later editing of the remainder of the record, Mosiah through Mormon 6. After interpreting words of Mormon 1, 3 through 6, Jones summarizes his findings. Quote, Thus this passage describes the importance of the prophecies on the small plates and tells us that Mormon chose at this time, before his abridgment of the large plates of Nephi, to make these prophecies and their fulfillment the main topic for the balance of his abridgment. Quote. Accordingly, as might be expected, one can perceive the strong correspondence and unity between the small plates and Alma's nuanced teaching in several places. Mormon selects for us and comments upon the writings of Alma in his abridgment. A handful of examples demonstrate the textual and conceptual influence of the small plates of Nephi on Mormon's abridgment of the large plates of Nephi between Mosiah and 3rd Nephi. 1. Further, the tree and fruit imagery from Alma 5.33 and 
62, borrows directly from Lehi's dream and or Nephi's vision. See 1 Nephi 8 and 15. This connection is rather obvious. 2. Alma's saying in Alma 13.23 that certain truths have been revealed in, quote, plain terms that we may understand, that we cannot err, close quote, seems to borrow from Nephi's declaration in 2 Nephi 25.7 that he intends to prophesy, quote, according to his plainness, in the which I know that no man can err, close quote. 3. Alma's distinct phrase, kingdom of the devil, Alma 5.25 and Alma 41.4 only appears elsewhere in ancient scripture in 1 Nephi 22.22 and 2 Nephi 28.19. 4. Alma seems to borrow from Jacob when he speaks of the Nephites being wanderers in a strange land. Alma 13.23 cf. wanderers in Jacob 7.26 and refers to, quote, parts of our vineyard, Alma 13.23 Jacob 5, 13, 14, 19, 38, 39, and 52. Alma also appears to borrow from Jacob, or Zenos, in Alma 16, 17. Alma's sole use of the rare phrase, true vine, is reminiscent of Nephi's and Jacob's phrases, true Messiah, true fold, and true church and fold. 1 Nephi 10, 14, 1 Nephi 15, 15, see also 2 Nephi 9, 2 possibly alluding to Nephi or Jacob, Zenos, Samuel the Lamanite uses the similar phrase, true shepherd, Helaman 15.13. It is interesting to notice that Nephi's use of the phrase, true olive tree, in the context of the imagery from Zenos' allegory in 1 Nephi 15.12-16, suggests that Samuel's use of true shepherd may either be borrowed from Lehi, Nephi, Jacob, or Zenos. Zenus allegory of the vineyard also ends with elusive touches of pastoral imagery. Indeed, vineyards and pastures have been mixed in Book of Mormon's imagery since Nephi, 1 Nephi 10, 12-14, 1 Nephi 15, 15-16. Zenus's allegory ends with the, quote, Lord of the vineyard, close quote, gathering all things into, quote, one body, or, quote, one fold. See Jacob 5, 68, 70, 74, also Jacob 13.41 and 1 Nephi 22.25. 5. Enos is saying that the preaching of the word was necessary, quote, stirring his people up continually, close quote, and that, quote, nothing short of these things and exceedingly great plainness of speech would keep them from destruction, close quote, seems to have a parallel in Alma, Enos 1.23, it was Alma who sought to, quote, stir up his people in remembrance of their duty, seeing no way that he might reclaim them, save it were in bearing down in pure testimony against them. Alma 4.19. 6. Alma 36.22 is an unmistakable borrowing from 1 Nephi 1.8. Here are additional points of influence within the record, some rather extensive. 1 Nephi 5.17-19 with Alma 37, 1 through 5, 1 Nephi 16, 29, with Alma 37, 6 through 7 and 41, and Jacob 4, 10, with Alma 37, 12. These points of contact are not exhaustive and could be greatly multiplied. In fact, we will examine a few additional ones later on. 
This sample of examples merely demonstrates that Alma was familiar with Nephi's written words and teachings. Here are two of the shorter examples from above presented side by side for easy access. Nephi, and thus we see that by small and simple means the Lord can bring about great things. Alma, but behold, I say unto you that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. Nephi, for behold, ye yourselves know that he counseleth in wisdom and in justice and in great mercy over all his works. Alma, and it may suffice if only, I say, they are preserved for a wise purpose, which purpose is known unto God, for he doth counsel in wisdom over all his works, and his paths are straight, and his course is one eternal round. Two of the other phrases in Alma 37.12 also indicate connections to the small plates. Wise purpose, also found in 1 Nephi 9.5, discussed further hereafter, and 1 Nephi 19.3, and one eternal round, found in 1 Nephi 10.19. Thus, this one verse by Alma makes it fairly clear that Alma is a careful student of the small plates of Nephi. In Alma 37.12, we have then a single verse with multiple characteristics and non-biblical phrases that seem to place the claim for Alma's possession of the small plates beyond dispute. In any case, the resonances are complex and intriguing and seem to confirm that Alma had strong familiarity with certain verses in 1 Nephi or with the small plates of Nephi. To solidify this point, I will demonstrate in addition to these phrasal parallels Alma's borrowing from Nephi, or perhaps Lehi. Indeed, as indicated, Alma 36.22 contains an impressive direct quotation from the small plates. See 1 Nephi 1.8. It is one that is so exact, distinct, and lengthy that it cannot plausibly be attributed to the general tradition. Lehi's words, as recorded by Nephi, are as follows. Quote, And being thus overcome with the Spirit, he, Lehi, was carried away in a vision, even that he saw the heavens open, and he thought he saw God sitting upon his throne, surrounded with numberless concourses of angels, in the attitude of singing and praising their God. First Nephi 1.8 Alma directly borrows these words from Lehi as he speaks to his son Helaman. Alma even connects them to Lehi by saying, quote, Even as our father Lehi saw. Yea, methought, I, Alma, saw, even as our father Lehi saw, God sitting upon his throne, surrounded by numberless concourses of angels, in the attitude of singing and praising their God. Yea, and my soul did long to be there. Alma 36.22 Given the foregoing, it is unlikely that these various intersections, whether exact, as in this last example, or approximate, as some are, can all be attributed to a broad rhetorical tradition as some of them are extensive and or very precise borrowings. It is possible, considering the overlap between Lehi's writings and Nephi's abridgment of his father's words, that some of what persists in the record can best be attributed to Lehi. But what portions of Nephi's extant account to Nephi's writings are not clear. Ultimately, it does not matter how the doctrines were passed down to Alma. The point is that Alma had them from his prophet fathers. Although Alma could have discovered some of these details on the brass plates in his possession or among Lehi's preserved writings, it is more probable that he possessed the small plates of Nephi and was a careful student of them 
and the other records in his possession. The subject of the transmission of small plates from Nephi to Alma will be examined later in more depth. Alma 37 further demonstrates Alma's likely possession of the small plates. Moreover, it suggests that the small plates were not just in his possession, but were in the possession of, in some sense and in some form, the sons of Mosiah while on their mission to the Lamanites. Alma 37 suggests that Alma desires to transmit to Helaman, quote, the records which have been entrusted with him, close quote, including the, quote, plates of Nephi, the large plates, the plates of brass, the 24 plates, and, quote, all the plates that do contain that which is holy writ. Alma 37, 1 through 3, 5, and 21. While 1st Nephi 5, 17 through 19, the small plates record, is strongly alluded to in Alma 37, 3 through 5, the plates of brass are not what is implied as going forth among the Lamanites in Alma 37, 5 through 12. In Alma 37, 5 through 12, Alma teaches that, quote, by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. Alma 37, 6. As he discusses the power of holy writ, he repeats three times the word small, in phrases such as small and simple, small means, and very small means. Alma 37, 6-7. See also 1 Nephi 16-29. One wonders if the repetition of the word small in these phrases could be a reference to the small plates themselves. Perhaps Alma is considering all plates in his hands as small things. However, it would be particularly natural for him to use that word if he were in possession of what Nephi called the small plates. Without having access to the large plates of Nephi ourselves, it is hard to say what spiritual matters were common to both records. However, we do know that the small plates were the more sacred account and were about the ministry and the prophecies as opposed to the wars contentions, and reigns of the kings. See 1 Nephi 1-6, through 1 Nephi 19-1-5. Furthermore, Alma reports that without these records that have been kept, quote, Ammon and his brethren could not have convinced so many of the Lamanites of the incorrect traditions of their fathers. Alma 37-9. These records, presumably the small and large plates of Nephi, brought the Lamanites to a correct knowledge of their first fathers and, quote, a knowledge of their Redeemer, Alma 37, 9 through 10. Even if this material came from the large plates of Nephi, it demonstrates that some important spiritual matters were also found on those plates. In that case, Alma could have learned of the Redeemer's coming to them from those plates. What is more plausible, though, is that he has all the records that have been vouchsafed from the earlier prophets, especially those that are most sacred. These records, he is not speaking of the brass plates in Alma 37.9, had convinced many Lamanites of the error of their ways and brought them to lament their actions against their Nephite brethren. Alma suggests that, quote, these things are preserved, quote, for a wise purpose in him, God. Alma 37.2, 12 and 14. This phrase, for a wise purpose in him, is associated with the small plates as early as 1st Nephi 9, 5 through 6, and is never used by anyone else besides Alma. This same phrase, wise purpose, can also be found in the Words of Mormon, Words of Mormon 1, 7. Given the possibility that Mormon had the small plates before his abridgment of the large plates, 
He may have borrowed that phrase from Nephi, as Alma apparently does. See 1 Nephi 9.5 and 1 Nephi 19.3. The resemblance between Nephi's and Alma's writings suggests that Alma may be influenced by Nephi due to his possession of the small plates. Below, we see Alma borrowing Nephi's distinct small plates phrase for a wise purpose in him, as well as teaching that the fathers received a promise from the Lord concerning the transmission of the small plates. Nephi, wherefore the Lord hath commanded me, Nephi, to make these plates for a wise purpose in him, which purpose I know not. But the Lord knoweth all things from the beginning, wherefore he prepareth a way to accomplish all his works among the children of men. For behold, he hath all power unto the fulfilling of all his words, and thus it is, Amen. First Nephi 9, 5-6. Alma. But if ye, Helaman, keep the commandments of God, and do with these things which are sacred according to that which the Lord doth command you, behold, no power of earth or hell can take them from you, for God is powerful to the fulfilling of all his words. For he will fulfill all his promises which he has made unto you, for he has fulfilled his promises which he has made unto our fathers. For he promised unto them that he would preserve these things for a wise purpose in him, that he might show forth his power unto future generations. Hama 37, 16-17 this material seems to establish that Alma was in possession of the small plates of Nephi and thus was aware of the prophecies concerning the coming of the Lord to the Jews and to them, if not also aware of his coming to others. The textual, conceptual, and doctrinal continuity is difficult to explain away despite its irregularity. And yet, the transmission of certain essential Nephite doctrines is not straightforward, that is why the positive passages confirming the transfer of formal fundamental truths are so exciting to discover in Mormon's account. Accordingly, consider the following excerpts from Alma's teachings about the time of his great sermon to the church recorded in Alma 5, the time of the ministry of his friends among the Lamanites. Alma 16 recounts the desolation of the Ammonites shortly after Alma and Amulek preached unto them as part of Alma's regulatory tour of the Nephite lands and church, a tour that commenced in Zarahemla, Alma 5.1. Here notice Alma's firm grasp of the doctrine of the Lord's coming to the Jews and how it is coupled with the doctrine that Christ would come to his own people, Lehites. Yet nothing is said about the precise time and place of that event. Also notice how widely the doctrine of Christ's coming to the Lehites was taught among the Nephites according to this passage. Quote, and Alma and Amulek went forth preaching repentance. And thus did Alma and Amulek go forth, and also many more who had been chosen for the work, to preach the word throughout all the land. And the establishment of the church became general throughout the land, in all the region round about, among all the people of the Nephites. And there was no inequality among them as to having access to the truth, the Lord did pour out his Spirit on all the face of the land to prepare the minds of the children of men, or to prepare their hearts, to receive the word which should be taught among them at the time of his coming. Holding forth things which must shortly come, yea, holding forth the coming of the Son of God, his sufferings and death, and also the resurrection of the dead. 
And many people did inquire concerning the place where the Son of God should come. And they were taught that he would appear unto them after his resurrection. And this the people did hear with great joy and gladness. Alma 16, 13-20, see also Helaman 16, 5. Significantly, this relatively plain passage concludes the block of chapters that commence in Alma 5.1 and ends in Alma 16.21. From these verses, we learn that Alma was not alone in his knowledge that Christ would come not only to the Jews in and around Jerusalem, but in his knowledge that, quote, after his, the Lord's, resurrection, close quote, Jesus would come among the Lehites. However, we also learn from these verses that many people had questions, quote, concerning the place where the Son of God should come, close quote. We are told that the Nephites knew his visit would occur sometime after Jesus' resurrection. But there is no sense that the people of the Nephite church had a clear understanding of the exact time and place of his coming. I would further suggest that Alma, if not his people too, had some sense that the coming of the Lord would also have a semi-universal aspect. At least Alma seems to teach this in both Alma 5 and Alma 13, as we shall explain in a later section of this paper. In short, the case is compelling for continuity through at least Alma's writings, even if there are still open questions for Alma and his people and for scholars interested in the question of continuity. Considering the arguments for discontinuity described earlier, and the ways in which Alma 5 receives little attention elsewhere in regard to this specific question about Alma's awareness of the coming of the Lord to his people, it may be of some value to revisit Alma's general writings with a careful eye focusing on this somewhat elusive doctrine. That is, in addition to the above discussion of Alma 16, 13-20, I particularly wish to concentrate this exegetical effort on Alma 5, but as mentioned, I will take an interest in many of the other words of Alma where he appears to less discernibly address this subject, including Alma 7, 13, and 39. In what follows, it will be argued that in Zarahemla and in other places such as Gideon and Ammonihah, Alma underscores the urgent need of repentance among his people because the Lord is to make a visit to them to establish his kingdom among them, as he will do among others elsewhere. This event that for our purposes constitutes part of the Lord's first coming to earth, Alma insists, is according to his father's prophecies and is what he has, quote, fasted and prayed for many days that he might know of himself. Alma 5.46 In addition to applying close reading strategies, the method to be followed to demonstrate this assertion, as we have already seen, is also intratextual, or we might say comparative. In general, after reviewing Alma's relationship to the Nephite church and the earliest Nephite prophecies concerning the coming of the Lord to the earth, we will conduct a limited analysis of Alma's preaching in Gideon, Alma 7, his preaching in Ammonihah, Alma 13, and his counsel to Corianton in Zarahemla, Alma 39. Then it will be possible to perform an alternative reading of Alma 5, in context with some of his later appropriations by Mormon in Helaman 16 and 3 Nephi 8-10. Mormon appears to allude to Alma 5 when he discusses both the Lord's coming to the Jews and his coming to the Lehites. 
I will conclude the project with a restatement of the findings and some parting observations. The Early Nephite Church The Nephite Church is established or reformed by Alma's father, a former priest of King Noah. After the prophet Abinadi finished his message and sealed his testimony with his life, Alma fled Noah's court and recorded Abinadi's inspired remarks. Alma gathered a congregation at the Waters of Mormon and later led the church in Zarahemla and throughout the land. See Mosiah 18.30, also Mosiah 25.15-24. However, sometime after that, dissension erupted in the church, quote, among the brethren, close quote and some of the young and vulnerable in society became unbelievers, Mosiah 26.5 and 27.1. In addition, some who had been little children at the time of King Benjamin's final sermon, quote, could not understand the words of King Benjamin, close quote, and thus would not agree to be baptized, even though their parents presumably had been. Quote, because of their disbelief, the unbelievers could not understand the words of God spoken by King Benjamin, concerning the resurrection and the coming of Christ, close quote. Nor would they, quote, call upon the Lord their God, close quote, for greater understanding of these truths. Mosiah 26, 1-4. The unbelief and dissension in this time period of Nephite society and church history constitutes yet another departure from the traditions of their fathers, a tradition that is later described as foolish, vain, and silly. See Mosiah 26, 1-5, Alma 36, 12 through 15, 31. One of those who apparently departed from the church during this season because of the persuasion of dissenters was Alma. It is in this tumultuous environment that Alma and four of the sons of Mosiah traveled about the land seeking, quote, to destroy the church of God, close quote. Alma is described in the record as being a, quote, man of many words, close quote, who had become, quote, very wicked and idolatrous. Mosiah 27, 8 through 10. Alma's father and the people of the church were so concerned about the rising generation and their general dissension from the church over the doctrines of the resurrection and the coming of Christ that they fasted and prayed that Alma and the others might, quote, come to a knowledge of the truth, close quote, of these established or traditional teachings. In response to the faith exercised by the people of the church concerning the unbelievers, Alma and his friends were visited by an angel who rebuked them with a voice of thunder that, quote, caused the earth to shake upon which they stood, Mosiah 27, 11-16. The angel sent from God commanded Alma to, quote, seek to destroy the church no more, 27, 17. The shock of the angelic visitation caused him to become mute and paralyzed. However, with additional fasting and prayer after three days, Alma was delivered from his state of unbelief and paralysis. It is what follows next that will be of most interest to us as we proceed. For once delivered from his disabled condition, Alma stood and spoke with passion to those assembled. Alma's spontaneous utterance on this occasion contains the seeds of much of what he taught and did himself later as head of the church in Zarahemla, Gideon, Ammoniah, and elsewhere. That is why I take the time to briefly rehearse the familiar story. On this occasion, Alma reported to his father and his priests that he had, during the three days, repented of his sins and had been born again, and that the Lord significantly had taught him that he intended these blessings to be made available to all who desire to, quote, inherit the kingdom of God, 
Mosiah 27, 24 through 26. Aside from this expansion of Alma's perspective on the work of the Lord in the midst of his confession, we learn that he had been one of those in the church who had, quote, rejected the Redeemer and denied that which had been spoken by our fathers, close quote, concerning the Lord's coming, Mosiah 27.30. Due to what Alma appears to have learned during his angelic encounter and ordeal, he begins to see that in some sense the Lord will, quote, remember every creature of his creating, close quote, that, quote, he will make himself manifest unto all, Mosiah 27.30. This occasion seems to be paradigm-shifting for Alma and causes him to search the prophecies and ask new questions about associated doctrines as found in the writings of his prophet fathers. During this period, Alma seems to have spent time seriously examining the prophecies and considering anew the questions of the resurrection and the coming of the Lord. The record says that he and his royal friends went about, quote, explaining the prophecies and scriptures to all who desired to hear them, close quote. They did, quote, bring many to the knowledge of the truth, yea, to a knowledge of their Redeemer, close quote, and the, quote, good tidings, close quote, of his coming to establish his kingdom on the earth, Mosiah 27, 35-37. During this time of repentance, development, and maturation, Alma would have presumably pondered the prophecies and reflected on the teachings of the fathers concerning the resurrection and the coming, or comings, of the Lord to the earth. To lay a foundation to discuss Alma's teachings, it would be helpful to review the prophetic tradition and writings to which he would have had access. It should be remembered in all of this that the church was struggling with dissenters over just these subjects in the time that Alma was touring the land, quote, confirming his faith, close quote, as well as, quote, explaining the prophecies and the scriptures, Mosiah 27, 33 and 35. The Fathers on the Coming or Comings of Christ As we have seen, the Book of Mormon represents the coming of Christ in something of a complicated way, giving different emphases at different moments. It is probably best to refer to the comings of the Lord instead of the coming of the Lord. Here it will be argued that Lehi and Nephi and others, such as Jacob, Enos, Abinadi, and King Benjamin, address the subject of the coming of the Lord. However, it will be demonstrated that the Lord's coming was not just the Jews in Jerusalem in the first century A.D. Instead, at this stage, we will be most interested in Alma's father's predictions about the Lord's coming to the Lehites and others, since that will allow us to understand Alma's prophecies and teachings better when the time comes to examine his sermons at Zarahemla, Gideon, and Ammonihah. I will reserve my discussion of Zenos' prophecy in 1 Nephi 19.10-11 until a later section and limit myself there to the apparent line of transmission between Lehi and King Benjamin. Later, I will also make a few more comments about Samuel the Lamanite's words and Mormon's use of Alma's writings. Lehi's teachings. To begin, Lehi declared the coming of the Lord after seeing visions and receiving a book of prophecy. See 1 Nephi 1.19. And yet, as mentioned, there seems to be some ambiguity in what we later learn from the Nephite record about this subject. Before he escaped Jerusalem with his family, Nephi records that Lehi learned from a book of prophecy delivered to him about the destruction of the great city Jerusalem, 
and about a book that, quote, manifested plainly of the coming of a Messiah. 1 Nephi 1.4 and 12-13 and 19. Nephi writes that Lehi went forth to bear witness of those things to come that, quote, he had both seen and heard, close quote, but that he was rejected by the Jews. 1 Nephi 1, 18-19. Later, Nephi chronicles for us Lehi's further teachings concerning the Messiah who should come unto the Jews. As indicated, he recounts that Lehi prophesied that the Messiah, or Savior of the world, should come, quote, 600 years from the time that he left Jerusalem, close quote. Moreover, Lehi said that the way would be prepared before him, the Messiah, by a prophet. This Messiah, or Redeemer, according to Lehi, would preach his gospel, quote, among the Jews, close quote, and, quote, rise from the dead, and should make himself manifest by the Holy Ghost unto the Gentiles, First Nephi 10, 3-11. In expounding his father's, quote, many great words, close quote, to his brothers, Nephi explains that, quote, many generations after the Messiah shall be manifest in body unto the children of men, close quote, his father's seed would be blessed through the, quote, fullness of the gospel, close quote, received by the Gentiles. First Nephi 15, 3 and 13. Lehi's seed would again, quote, come to a knowledge of their forefathers, and also to a knowledge of the gospel of their Redeemer, which was ministered unto their fathers by him. 1 Nephi 15.14 This new knowledge of their Redeemer would be instrumental in gathering them in a latter day into the true fold of God, or the true olive tree. 1 Nephi 15.14-16 Nephi then describes for us those things that he himself saw in apocalyptic vision, concerning the Lord's coming to the Jews and Gentiles, as well as his coming to Lehi's seed. See 1 Nephi 11-14. Accordingly, in the simplest of terms, the Nephite fathers had a basic twofold understanding of the coming of the Lord. It will be expanded into a fourfold doctrine later. This understanding appears to surface from time to time in the middle part of the Book of Mormon, suggesting that there was doctrinal continuity on this subject at least from Lehi to Alma. Here are two comings that Lehi and Nephi appear to speak of the most, and this is their order of importance. 1. The Lord's coming to the Jews in Jerusalem when he would teach his gospel, suffer, die, and be raised up. 1 Nephi 10, 3-11, 1 Nephi 15, 13. Strictly speaking, Nephi says that he spoke of the Lord's coming, quote, in body unto the children of men, close quote. That last phrase may have wider application than just pointing to his life and ministry among the Jews. Two, the Lord's coming to the Lehites when he would, quote, minister unto their fathers, First Nephi 15.14. To these fundamental doctrines might be added the Lord's visiting the Gentiles by the Holy Ghost and the fullness of the gospel in a latter day before his second coming. The Nephite fathers were aware of these doctrines as well. What there does not appear to be strong evidence for, before about 1 Nephi 19, 10-11, is the Lord's intent, according to Zenos' prophecy, to visit the remnants of the house of Israel about the time of his death, when the sign of darkness is given to those on the isles of the sea who are of the house of Israel. Nephi's Teachings 
in Nephi's vision spanning much of what would become modern history. We learn that the Messiah would, as Lehi indicated, come among his own people, the Jews, 1 Nephi 11.27. The, quote, Redeemer of the world, close quote, would again be preceded by the, quote, prophet who should prepare the way before him, 1 Nephi 11.27. This Messiah, now referred to as the Lamb of God, would be baptized and, quote, minister unto the people in power and great glory, 1 Nephi 11.27-28-31. He would be, quote, lifted up upon the cross and slain for the sins of the world, 1 Nephi 11.33. Nephi's vision, however, not only describes the Messiah's ministry among the Jews in Palestine, but, as Nephi will now record, it demonstrates that his first coming, or first comings, would include a visit to the New World. In fact, early on in his vision, Nephi is exhorted to watch for the special event as it is the centerpiece of his vision. See 1 Nephi 11.7. Subsequently, Nephi records seeing destruction and the sign of darkness among his seed, and then says, quote, And it came to pass that after I saw these things, I saw the vapor of darkness, that it passed from off the face of the earth, behold, I saw multitudes who had not fallen because of the great and terrible judgments of the Lord. And I saw the heavens open, and the Lamb of God descending out of heaven, and he came down and showed himself unto them. 1 Nephi 12, 5-6 This appearance of the Messiah, or Lamb, among the seed of Lehi, from this point on becomes an important part of Nephite teaching and prophetic tradition, one that Alma will be conscious of and, as mentioned, teach widely with others of the Nephite church. Later in Nephi's vision, we learn that this messianic visitation and ministry among the Lehites would be recorded when it occurred and would yet play an important role along with, quote, other books in a future day of redemption that would begin with the Gentiles, 1 Nephi 13, 39-42. This anticipated ministry of the Messiah among his father's seed is entertained again by Nephi at some length in his final prophecy. See Second Nephi 26, 3-9. There, as before, we witness the destruction and works of darkness among Lehi's seed. And then we are told that after the Lord's death and resurrection, the, quote, Son of Righteousness, Messiah, shall appear unto Lehi's seed with healing in his wings. Second Nephi 26, 9. Nephi ends his overall account exhorting us to respect the words, quote, which shall proceed forth from the mouth of the Lamb of God at the time of his coming, close quote. By which he means the words of the resurrected Messiah, who will come sometime after his resurrection in some undisclosed way among his father's seed in a future generation many centuries hence. Second Nephi 33.14 Alma inherits all this as the prophetic tradition transmitted by the fathers. Jacob's teachings. Jacob, Nephi's brother, also has a complicated but largely consistent view of the comings of the Lord. He and his people had searched much and were very interested in things to come. See Second Nephi 9.4. Due to their faith and great anxiety, Jacob 1.5, they had, quote, many revelations and the spirit of much prophecy. Jacob 1.6. For instance, in 2 Nephi 6-10, through 10, Jacob, borrowing heavily from his brother's teachings and Isaiah, 
provides his readers three variations on the coming of the Lord. 1. Jacob speaks of the Lord's coming among the Jews. See 2 Nephi 6, 9, 2 Nephi 9, 4 through 5, and 21. Also, 2 Nephi 10, 3 through 6. 2. Jacob speaks of the Lord's manifesting himself to the Gentiles and through them to others, quote, setting his hand again a second time. 2 Nephi 6, 14. See also 2 Nephi 10, 8 through 19, 21, 11, and Jacob 6, 2. Lehi and Nephi had dwelt on this subject. 3. Jacob speaks of the Lord's second coming as a divine warrior to deliver his covenant people. See 2 Nephi 6, 13-14 and 17. Nephi had also spoken of this coming. 1 Nephi 22, 24-28. Notably, Nephi also understands the Messiah's second coming to be preceded by a grafting in of all persons who would hear his voice into the fold of the Good Shepherd, 1 Nephi 13.41, 1 Nephi 22.25. To these three concepts of the coming of the Lord found in Jacob's teachings may be added a fourth that also originated with Nephi, or Zenos. For, although it is more speculative, if Jacob is not speaking of the Lord's coming to the Jews, he may speak of the Lord's coming among the Lehites. See Jacob 1, 5 through 7, or if not that, he may here speak of the kingdom that is to be established by the latter-day Gentiles, as referred to in Jacob 5, 61 through 76. Nephi calls this kingdom Zion and the church of the Lamb. This last observation may need a little explanation. Understanding Jacob's reference to the kingdom which should come in Jacob 1, 6, depends on what is alluded to in Jacob 1.5. If verse 5 refers to the judgments of the Lord as described in 3 Nephi 8-10, through 10, judgment is a type of visitation. See 2 Nephi 1.12 and 18. Then verse 6 may refer to the kingdom established at the Lord's coming to the Lehites. But if verse 5, as is likely, refers to the Nephites' eventual annihilation 400 years after the Lord's coming to the Jews, a theme of great interest to Nephi, Alma, Nephi II, and Samuel the Lamanite, then the kingdom referred to is that restored in a latter day. Jacob 1.7's connection to Jacob and his ministry, quote, among his people, close quote, seems to suggest that he could have in mind the prophecies of his brother about the Lord's coming to the Lehites. It likely does not refer to the kingdom that was set up among the first century Jews, and Gentiles, given its specifically Nephite context in verse 5. The imagery in Jacob 1.7 alludes to Moses' attempts to introduce his people to the Lord's presence amidst great fire and thick darkness when they were encamped at the foot of Sinai, Deuteronomy 5.22-28. They feared and were not able to enter into the Lord's rest, see Alma 16.16-17. 16, 16 in Third Nephi, as some have noted, the account, much as in Matthew's Gospel, represents the Lord as a new Moses, delivering the higher law to his people from a holy place. Accordingly, it is unclear what kingdom Jacob refers to in Jacob 1.7, but the imagery from verse 7 may apply to the events of Third Nephi at Bountiful. It is true that later in Jacob 4, Jacob's focus is on the Lord's coming to the Jews, 
to make atonement, resurrection. And in Jacob 5, his focus is on the coming of the kingdom of God, or church of God, in the last days before the final burning. Nephi sums up Jacob's teachings in 2 Nephi 6-10 in 2 Nephi 11 by referring to at least two of the comings of the Lord. The Lord's coming to the Jews, see 2 Nephi 11-4 and 6-7, and the Lord's latter-day coming to the Gentiles, see 2 Nephi 11-5. The foregoing list of items 1-4 through above is provided to demonstrate that Jacob, like Lehi and Nephi, has a sophisticated understanding of the Lord's coming. Enos' teachings. Enos also appears to allude to the coming of the Lord to the Jews and to the Lehites in his record. A voice, to his mind, whispers that because of his faith in Christ, whom he has never before seen or heard, his sins are forgiven. Enos 1, 5, and 8. He is told that, quote, Many years pass away before he, the Lord, shall manifest himself in the flesh. Enos 1.8 This appears to refer to the Lord's coming to offer himself a sacrifice in the old world. The word flesh most often refers to mortality. However, these words cause Enos to consider his own people's situation broken off and in a land far away from those redemptive events to come. Thus Enos, quote, struggles in the spirit, close quote, to lay hold of a blessing for his own people. Again, his account says the, quote, voice of the Lord came into his mind, Enos 1.10. In language reminiscent of the original covenant made to Lehi and Nephi, see 1 Nephi 2.20-21, Enos is told that, quote, I will visit thy brethren according to their diligence in keeping my commandments, Enos 1.10. Then the Lord adds this in some contrast to what he has already said. Quote, I have given unto them this land, and it also is a holy land. Enos 1.10 He concludes, quote, Wherefore I will visit thy brethren according as I have said. Enos 1.10 That the Lord here may refer to his visit to them in a future day seems at least possible given Enos' response to this targeted promise. Quote, and after I, Enos, had heard these words, my faith began to be unshaken in the Lord. Enos 1.11 It is no surprise that the rest of Enos' days were spent, quote, among the people of Nephi, prophesying of things to come, and testifying of the things which I, he, not unlike Nephi and Jacob, had heard and seen. Enos 1.19 and 26 Abinadi's and King Benjamin's teachings. After Enos, the spirit of prophecy was enjoyed by many others, and the records were handed down from one prophet to another. Jerem 1.4, Omni 1.13. To these early Nephite teachings might be added those of Abinadi and King Benjamin, each of whom had much to say about the coming of the Lord, his resurrection, and his ascension. It is Abinadi who says that Moses and all the holy prophets spoke of his coming to his people. Abinadi taught that, quote, God himself should come down among the children of men and take upon him the form of man and go forth in mighty power upon the face of the earth. Mosiah 13, 33-35 It was also this prophet who used Isaiah 53 from the brass plates to apparently point to others outside the known fold who were yet to be counted among the Lord's seed. 
Abinadi recounts that Isaiah said that, quote, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he, the Lord, shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. Mosiah 14.10 In this way, the messianic servant referred to by Isaiah would have opportunity to justify many. Mosiah 14.11 Christ's seed, according to Abinadi, would include, quote, all those, past, present, and future, who have hearkened unto the words, close quote, of the Holy Prophets, Mosiah 15.11. The Lord would go and see the righteous spirits of the dead and organize the work of gathering among them. Further, his personal ministry as the Good Shepherd would even include those not among his flock in the Old World, as we learn in 3 Nephi 15.16-16.3 and John 10.16-18. Alma presumably has a portion of this, Nephi's Lehi's, Jacob's, and Abinadi's teachings in mind when he testifies in Zarahemla about the coming of the Lord. Alma repeatedly calls him the Good Shepherd, as indicated. For, as we will see, he appears to have more than his own people in mind when he alludes to the Lord's post-resurrection ministry in Alma 5 and 13. Further, it is King Benjamin who teaches similar doctrine in a way that can be easily missed. In Mosiah 3, we learn of an angelic announcement of the coming of the Lord. In response to King Benjamin's prayers, the angel announces to him, quote, glad tidings of great joy, quote. Or in his own words, the angel speaks to him, quote, concerning that which is to come, quote. In his remarkable message, a message spanning all dispensations, past, present, and future, the angel declares that, quote, the time cometh and is not far distant, that with power the Lord Omnipotent who reigneth, who was and is from all eternity to all eternity, shall come down from heaven among the children of men, and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay, quote, among the Jews. Mosiah 3, 1-5 And yet the angel indicates that the Jews would reject him, even though they would have received quote, types and shadows, close quote, and the law of Moses, to point them to him many years beforehand. Mosiah 3.14-15 In the midst of this teaching, the angel underscores the redemptive implications of this message and touches on those without law or not under law. See Mosiah 3.11-16 and 16. In the following passage, though, the Lord appears to refer to the seed of Lehi and others of the tribes of Israel among whom he would visit according to the Father's prophecies. Quote, and the Lord God hath sent his holy prophets among all the children of men, before Christ, to declare these things to every kindred, nation, and tongue, that thereby whosoever should believe that Christ should come, the same might receive remission of their sins, and rejoice with exceedingly great joy, even as though he had already come among them. Mosiah 3.13 In this way, the angel has suggested to King Benjamin the coming of the Lord among the Jews to perform his blood atonement for all people, and implied that Christ would also minister, quote, among all the children of men, to every kindred, nation, and tongue, close quote, including the Lehites and other remnants of the house of Israel. Hence, King Benjamin's people may rejoice for these two reasons. Granted, the emphasis, as in all gospel teaching, is upon the Redeemer's blood atonement. 
However, there appears to be an unstated assumption here that has bearing on this study. To be clear, it should be noted that the angel could not say, quote, even as though he had already come among them, every kindred, nation, and tongue, close quote, if Christ were not already expected to come among them. The word then in the line, quote, even as though he had already come among them, seems primarily to refer to the remnants of the house of Israel. Some of the persons the angel refers to are already scattered among the nations. According to the angel, from the beginning, holy prophets have been sent among every kindred, nation, and tongue to prepare the way for the Lord's ministry to them. Mosiah 3.13 King Benjamin's teachings are consistent with the teachings of Lehi, Nephi, and Zenos, Jacob, Isaiah, and Abinadi. The angel concludes his message on the blood atonement of Christ by projecting out to a latter day when a, quote, knowledge of a Savior, close quote, would be had again among the children of men, Mosiah 3.20. In that day, he says, none would be, quote, blameless before God, Mosiah 3.20-21. Thus, again, all would be accountable in the day of the Lord's second coming. This is consistent with the earliest teachings. In summary, then, from at least the time of Lehi, the Nephite prophets had a complex understanding of the coming of the Lord. Their first interest was in the coming of the Lord to the Jews to make atonement for all on conditions of repentance. This is not disputed. Nevertheless, it would seem that the prophets were aware of and taught the coming of the Lord in a variety of ways that support the belief that there was a continuity of understanding among them about the coming of the Lord to the Lehites. Nephi firmly established this tradition among his own people, but it actually can be traced back to Zenos through Nephi. See 1 Nephi 19, 10-12. I acknowledge that it is difficult to say what proportion of the Nephites understood these prophecies, but I assume that many of the most faithful must have comprehended them, since they would have had the spirit of prophecy as did their leaders. And we know that the Nephite church was taught these doctrines in Alma's day, Alma 16, 16-19, see also Mosiah 5, 1-4. In what follows, we will review Alma's teachings and suggest that Alma 5 constitutes a powerful prophecy and warning about the coming of the Lord to the seed of Lehi, according to the tradition belonging to his prophet fathers. Alma prophesies in this manner while also seemingly alluding to the other sheep doctrine that was perhaps a less defined part of the earlier prophetic tradition. See 1 Nephi 13.41, 1 Nephi 22.25, Mosiah 26.20-28. It is this tangle of prophecies about the coming of the Lord that have just been explained that advocates of discontinuity assume had been lost from the Nephites' collective memory. In contrast, I claim that there appears to be a continuity on this subject among the prophets and the community of believers, even if there are remaining questions and concerns about the precise sequence and nature of pending events for Alma and his people. Alma's Prophecy and Warning in Alma 5 Now it is time to turn our attention to Alma 5 to see in which ways that prophetic text reflects the coming of the Lord. Alma 5 is a much-appreciated chapter of Scripture among the rank-and-file members of the Lord's restored church. Often its intrinsic power is noted, 
and its doctrinal content and textual characteristics are taught. Perhaps certain readers view it as a sermon on the power of the Word of God, on repentance from sin, pride, or on bringing forth good works. Some readers of it may draw attention to its laundry list of penetrating rhetorical questions. If you have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can you feel so now? Others share a verse or two from it to encourage greater devotion or endurance. Alma 5.26 We often hear of the mighty change of heart and having the Lord's image in our countenance. Alma 5.14 All of this is edifying. But it seems that we are, to a degree, missing the message of the sermon in our fascination with its individual verses and salient textual features. Here it is suggested that Alma 5 constitutes a prophecy and warning to the Nephite church of the Lord's coming to the new world to establish among them his kingdom. It is this anticipated event that Alma seems to have sought to better understand. In Alma 5, Alma declares the coming of the Lord and his kingdom. He presents that kingdom in locally relevant and yet also more expansive terms as he did in Alma 13. Alma 5 is addressed to a divided people in Zarahemla in about 83 BC during a time of disciplinary regulation. Alma has recently relinquished the judgment seat that he might dedicate his efforts to, quote, bearing down in pure testimony against them, Alma 4.19. His audience appears to be composed of the proud and humble members of the Nephite church, as well as others not of the church who have gathered out of curiosity. Alma's powerful sermon represents an urgent and at times confrontational appeal from the head of the church to repent and be born again before the coming of the Lord to his people in this land. In it, Alma reviews recent redemptive history among the fathers in the, quote, land of Mormon, and quote, in the wilderness, and then asks his listeners a series of penetrating questions to prepare them for the day of the final judgment, and it appears more immediate events, Alma 5, 3, and 5. Alma suggests that the proud of the church have fallen into transgressions, such as idolatry, sophistry, sexual immorality, and neglect of the poor, Alma 5, 55. Thus, he declares repentance to them. Alma warned the proud that the, quote, axe is laid at the root of the tree, close quote. And he says, all they not of the fold of the good shepherd must soon face the consequence. Alma 5.52, Alma 5.37-60. Alma prophesies that all unrepentant workers of iniquity will be sooner or later, quote, hewn down and cast into the fire. Alma 5.35, 32, and 56. Quote, For behold, Alma affirms, the time cometh that whosoever doeth not the works of righteousness, the same will have cause to wail and mourn. Alma 5.36. All this, he insists, is consistent with what his fathers have taught, quote, concerning things which are to come. Alma 5.44. After explaining that the church members must heed the invitation of the Good Shepherd and prepare themselves for the time to shortly come, Alma asks his people, quote, Do ye not suppose that I know these things, that Christ will shortly come to us after the judgments of God are manifest, myself? Alma 5:37 and 45. He says, quote, "Behold, I testify unto you that I do know these things whereof I have spoken are true." 
Alma 5.45. He explains that some of the questions that he once had as a young man have since been put to bed, quote, by the Holy Spirit of God, Alma 5.46. Alma reports that he has come to understand for himself that these things are true. Quote, Behold, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know of these things of myself, Alma 5.46. Since his conversion, Alma appears to have learned many truths. Perhaps as a result of his rebirth, as indicated earlier, Alma begins to take a serious interest in what his fathers had taught about the coming of the Redeemer. This new interest in the teachings of the prophet fathers appears to have caused Alma in subsequent years to immerse himself in the prophecies. At the very least, Alma would have had to unlearn what he thought he knew about the scriptures, since he had dedicated himself to destroying the church and fighting against the claims of prophecy when young. In this season of personal reformation, Alma must have had it confirmed to him, quote, by the Spirit of God, close quote, that the Lord would not only come to the Jews to perform the atonement and resurrection, but that he would visit his own people, the Lehites, and establish his earthly kingdom among them. However, despite his efforts, Alma appears not to have found answers to all of his questions about how and when this event would unfold, since, as he later teaches his son, quote, there are many mysteries which are kept that no one knoweth save God himself. Close quote. See Alma 5.46, also Alma 37.11, Alma 43. After Alma's conversion at the time the angel reproved him and his friends, he seems to have ruminated on the nuances and gaps in his previous assumptions about the teachings of his fathers, including those teachings connected to the Lord's coming to the Jews and Lehi's seed. Before Alma concludes his message in Alma 5 by commanding the church members in Zarahemla to repent and inviting the others present to come and be baptized under repentance, he seems to prepare the hearts and minds of his people with an urgency for what is to come among them. The Lord, the Good Shepherd, intends to visit them, if not others also. Alma 5, 37-38 here are some of the most relevant statements demonstrating Alma's urgent concern that the Lord would soon come among them. 1. Quote, Behold, ye must prepare quickly, for the kingdom of heaven is soon at hand. Alma 5.28 2. I say unto you that such an one is not prepared, and I would that he should prepare quickly, for the hour is close at hand, and he knoweth not when the time shall come, for such an one is not found guiltless. Alma 5.29 3. Woe unto such an one, for he is not prepared, and the time is at hand, that he must repent or he cannot be saved. Alma 5.31 It appears that Alma has at least two truths in mind when he declares the Nephite church to prepare quickly, for the kingdom of heaven is soon at hand. The kingdom is the church, and if it is soon at hand, then it cannot already be on the earth. What is present cannot be prepared for quickly, cannot arrive soon, nor can it be close at hand. And yet we know that Alma is, quote, a high priest over the church of God, Alma 5.3. So what kingdom can Alma and his people anticipate? On the one hand, just as Alma's fathers did, he appears to have in mind the coming of the Lord to the Jews in Jerusalem to perform the atonement and resurrection. For he has much to say about, quote, his people, 
the Nephite church, being cleansed from all stain, through the blood of him of whom it has been spoken by our fathers. Alma 5.21 See also Alma 5.22-27 And when Jesus came to the Jews, he did establish his church and kingdom on the earth, in that region of the earth. So clearly, and most importantly, Alma, on the one hand, anticipates the coming of the Lord to make himself the atonement for sin. See Alma 5.48, also Moses 4.6-8. However, on the other hand, Alma seems to have in mind more than that seminal event. He appears to be thinking of the Son of God's ministry thereafter to his other sheep. I say this because of the general sweep of Alma's sermon. Alma in part declares that, quote, Whatsoever I shall say concerning that which is to come is true, Alma 5.48. The phrase, whatsoever I say, suggests that what Alma has said and will say in Alma 5 is perhaps multifaceted, or that it may reach further than expected. Here again, Alma's address expands in scope. This expansion is signaled in verses 33-36, through where Alma uses encompassing words such as all men and whosoever. Alma explains that he is, quote, called to speak unto this people concerning things which are to come, Alma 5.44. Then he adds, I am called to preach unto, quote, everyone that dwelleth in the land, yea, to preach unto all, both old and young, both bond and free, Alma 5.49. Here, carried away by angelic zeal, see Alma 29, 1-2 and 7-8, Alma addresses in what the poets call an apostrophe, quote, all ye ends of the earth, close quote. For he announces, quote, the kingdom of heaven is soon at hand, Alma 5.50. This gradual transition in prophetic perspective toward the more universal, while not removing Alma's initial focus on the state of the church, is not accompanied by an image of a virgin or babe, but with the king of heaven striding forth in colossal power and dominion as king of all the earth, Alma 5.50. This is but a variation of the good shepherd motif that runs through much of the sermon. Alma apparently intends to prepare his people for more than their date with death or judgment, both subjects touched on in Alma 5. He also seems to have in mind the coming of the good shepherd to his sheep throughout much of the vineyard. Alma 5 harmonizes well, then, with his father's writings and with what we've already seen present in Alma's other teachings. See Alma 13, 22-26, Alma 16, 16-17. Alma's message seems to be this. The Nephite church, quote, must prepare quickly for the heavenly king, and thus the kingdom of heaven is soon at hand, close quote, among them. This prophetic prophecy and warning also fosters hope of good things to come unto all the nations of the earth, either directly or indirectly, or both. See First Nephi 19, 10-12, Alma 13, 22-26. In this context, Alma, using his father's imagery, announces to the Nephite church, quote, Behold he, the good shepherd, sendeth an invitation unto all men, for the arms of mercy are extended towards them. And he saith, Repent, and I will receive you. Yea, he saith, Come unto me, and ye shall partake of the fruit of the tree of life. Yea, ye shall eat and drink of the bread and waters of life freely. 
Yea, come unto me, and bring forth works of righteousness, and ye shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire. For behold, the time is at hand, that whosoever bringeth forth not good fruit, or whosoever doeth not the works of righteousness, the same shall have cause to wail and mourn. Alma 5.33-36 Upon reading this invitation unto all men, to repent and be spared, one wonders whether Alma again describes the final day of judgment, see 5.15-25, or whether he addresses a more imminent event, the same that his fathers had spoken of, the coming of the Lord to the new world and others. Jesus' ministry to his other sheep, the more righteous part of the Leites, was to personally bring unto this remnant of the house of Israel the blessings of the infinite atonement and his healing power. In summary, then, in Alma 5, Alma prophesies unto his people that the Lord who comes to make atonement for all will also be the same who establishes his work and kingdom among them and perhaps others among the nations of the earth. These truths he had come to understand by the Holy Ghost. That Alma in Alma 5 and Alma 13 and 16 prophesies of the coming of the Lord to the seed of Lehi in a future day explains why it is that Mormon, who is in possession of the early prophecies, appears to allude to Alma's words and general teachings, even as he records the events of Helaman and Third Nephi. Mormon's Use of Alma's Writings Many of the Father's prophecies that appear early in the Book of Mormon are echoed later in the text. From internal evidence, for instance, we can tell that Lehi, Nephi, and Zenos influenced later writers, including Alma, Samuel the Lamanite, and Mormon in Third Nephi. This has already been demonstrated. Similarly, figures and their words, after Lehi, Nephi, and Zenos, such as Abinadi and King Benjamin, are also very influential. See Alma 10.19. One of the most interesting examples of influence is tracing how Mosiah's speech in Mosiah 29 gets picked up later in the decades that precede the coming of the Lord to the Lehites. See Helaman 4.21, Helaman 5.2. Here, though, it is necessary to understand that Alma 5 and 13 seem to be borrowed from by Mormon in 3 Nephi 8-10. In 3 Nephi, Mormon borrows from Alma without signaling that he is doing so. He does that with a purpose. He desires to demonstrate that the words of the prophets were fulfilled in those events having to do with the coming of the Lord to the Lehites. The first passage wherein Mormon seems to borrow from Alma is Helaman 16, 13-14. It corresponds to Alma 13:26. The other place wherein Mormon appears to borrow from Alma is 3 Nephi 8-10. From Mormon's perspective, it appears that these chapters seem to fulfill Alma 5, 33-36. To be clear, I'm not arguing here that history was influenced by Alma, as much as I'm asserting that Alma accurately predicted history and that his prophetic words were fulfilled in the coming of Christ to the Lehites. Mormon's relation of the history in 3 Nephi 8-10 seems to intentionally confirm this. Mormon's use of Alma in Helaman Mormon appears to use Alma's writings as he describes events near the coming of the Lord to the New World. For instance, 
Woman's words in Helaman 16, 13 through 14 seem to correspond to Alma's words in Alma 13, 22 through 26. Helaman 16, 13 through 14, Helaman 16, 4 through 5 appears to lightly echo Alma 16, 19 through 20, represents Mormon's words just following Samuel the Lamanite's second sermon to Zarahemla on the destruction that awaits them if they do not repent, as well as on the signs of the Lord's birth and death, and by implication, resurrection. In Helaman 16, as Mormon concludes his account, he writes the following, But it came to pass that in the ninetieth year of the reign of the judges, there were great signs given unto the people and wonders, and the words of the prophets began to be fulfilled. And angels did appear unto men, wise men, and to declare unto them glad tidings of great joy. Thus, in this year, the scriptures began to be fulfilled. Among Alma's earlier words to the Ammonites in Alma 13, 24-26, verse 26 appears particularly resonant with the above words from Helaman 16:14, if not directly influential. Alma 13, 24-26 seems to be one of the prophetic passages that Mormon adapts as he writes of the coming of the Lord to the Lehites in Helaman 16-14. Quote, For behold, angels are declaring it unto many at this time in our land, and this is for the purpose of preparing the hearts of the children of men to receive his word at the time of his coming in his glory. And now we only await to hear the joyful news declared unto us by the mouth of angels, of his actual coming. For the time cometh, we know not how soon. Would to God it might be in my day, but let it be sooner or later, in it I will rejoice. And it shall be made known unto just and holy men by the mouth of angels at the time of his coming, that the words of our fathers may be fulfilled according to that which they have spoken concerning him, which was according to the spirit of prophecy in them. Alma 13, 24-26. The immediate context for Alma 13.26, then, is Alma's teaching to the Ammoniahites that angels are declaring it, the Lord's coming, unto many at this time in our land, for the purpose of preparing the hearts of the children of men to receive his word at the time of his coming and glory among them. Also see Alma 39.16. Significantly, Alma does not say here that the Lord will not come to them, but he says that we know not how soon it will be before he comes to us. He teaches affirmatively that, quote, the time cometh, close quote, and that when the time cometh, quote, it shall be made known, close quote. Thus, Mormon seems to associate these passages, Alma 13.26 and Helaman 16.14, to demonstrate that Alma's words were beginning to come to pass. Mormon does this by not only borrowing words from Alma, men, angels, and fulfilled, but by relating clustered concepts. To be specific, Mormon's phrase, wise men, can reasonably be paired with Alma's phrase, just and holy men. Mormon's statement, and angels did appear unto men, may be compared with Alma's, and it shall be made known unto men by the mouth of angels, and so on. See also Alma 10, 20-21. Both Alma and Mormon also refer to the authorities before them. Mormon refers to the prophets and the scriptures to make his point. Alma similarly refers to our fathers 
to make essentially the same point. Both Alma and Mormon teach in more or less the same language that according to the Father's prophecies, angels prepare the way of the Lord by appearing unto men. The implication for Mormon's reader is that Samuel the Lamanite, who was sent forth by an angel to preach to the people at Zarahemla, is a later fulfillment of Alma's earlier declaration. See Helaman 13.7, Helaman 14.9. Moreover, this angelic activity of which Samuel's experience is but a part is to prepare the people for the coming of Christ to them. It is not lost on Mormon that both Alma and Samuel declare repentance in Zarahemla for a similar purpose, to prepare the way of the Lord to them. As Mormon also must have known, the early part of Samuel's overall prophecy in Helaman 13-15 seems to represent a doctrinal anomaly that bears on the coming of the Lord. Of the five passages that foretell the utter destruction of the Nephite civilization using the time frame of 400 years, 2 Nephi 26-9, Alma 45-4-14, Helaman 13-9, 3 Nephi 27-32, and Mormon 8-6, only Samuel's teaching in Helaman 13.9 appears to be anchored to the birth of Christ. See Helaman 13.6-7. The other four renditions of the 400-year prophecy rather plainly mark time from the coming of the Lord to the Lehites. This discrepancy among prophecies invites the question, are we correctly understanding Samuel's words at Helaman 13.6-7 or is he articulating a different or second prophecy that only resembles the others but is not the same as the others? In Helaman 16, Mormon does not address this question. He appears to assume our understanding of the matter. Mormon treats Samuel's teachings as if they are in harmony with all the others. And why should they not be? This seeming difference between Samuel and prophets both before and after him is particularly remarkable since Samuel's teachings fairly plainly borrow from Lehi, Nephi, Zenos, and Alma. Most importantly, Samuel the Lamanite borrows from 1 Nephi 19.10-12, where Nephi tells us that Zenos prophesied of the coming of the Good Shepherd to many among the house of Israel at the time of the sign of his death. This intertextual reality may also explain in part why Samuel feels confident in announcing the Lord's coming into the world as a baby among the Jews is in five years. Helaman 14.2 I surmise as much because the first Nephi 19.10-12 passage also tells us that the Lord comes among the Jews, quote, in 600 years from the time that Lehi left Jerusalem, First Nephi 19.8. It does not seem problematic that Samuel cites an angel as the source of his teachings, since he plainly refers to the prophet's Prophecies and the Holy Scriptures, Helaman 15:7 and 13. For these reasons, I suspect that Mormon borrows from Alma and others to illustrate his point that prophecy is reliable and was indeed coming to pass that the people in Zarahemla might avoid the consequences that both Alma and Samuel had spoken of. Each had warned of fire upon Zarahemla if they did not repent and prepare for the coming of the Lord to them. See Alma 5:33-36 and Helaman 13.11-14. Not unlike Samuel, Mormon interweaves many known prophecies with the events that are transpiring at this season in real time before the people of Nephi. 
Mormon's use of Alma in 3 Nephi. To explain Mormon's apparent use of Alma 5, 33-36, especially verse 33, will require a bit more explanation and exegetical work than did Mormon's use of Alma 13.26. To demonstrate how Alma may suggest those very events recorded in 3 Nephi 8-10, through I will show how Mormon may use Alma 5, 33-36 and Alma 5, 52 and 56 to reflect the dramatic events that transpired just before the personal appearance of the Lord to the Lehites. To set the scene, let us remind the reader of the events recorded in 3rd Nephi. In addition, Mormon makes an argument that these characteristic events are unfulfilling of the Father's prophecies. See 3rd Nephi 1, 4, 13, 18, 20, 26, 3rd Nephi 9, 16, 3rd Nephi 10, 11, 14 through 15, 3rd Nephi 11, 12. In 3rd Nephi 8, 6 through 7, the account describes for us in vivid natural imagery the destruction foretold by Nephi, Zenos, and Samuel the Lamanite. Indeed, their prophecies predicting thunder, lightning, fire, and darkness in the land are abundantly fulfilled when Jesus comes to the new world. See 1st Nephi 12, 4 through 6, 1st Nephi 19, 10 through 11, 2nd Nephi 26, 3 through 9, Helaman 14, 26 through 27, 3rd Nephi 8, 6 through 7, 12, 17, and 19 through 20. Below is Mormon's historical account and argument for the prophetically anticipated events. Consider these representative passages for Mormon's account in 3rd Nephi 8 through 10, and there are many others. Quote, And there was also a great and terrible tempest, and there was terrible thunder, insomuch that it did shake the whole earth, and there were exceedingly sharp lightnings, such as never had been known in all the land. And the city of Zarahemla did take fire, presumably due to the sharp lightnings. See 3rd Nephi 8.12, 17.20.24, also 3rd Nephi 9.3. Mormon records these events to demonstrate the fulfillment of earlier prophecy. Given that Samuel the Lamanite borrows from Zenos' relevant prophecies quoted by Nephi, that the Lord would visit, quote, some remnants of the house of Israel on the isles of the sea with his voice because of their righteousness unto their great joy and salvation, and others with the thunderings and the lightnings of his power by tempest and by fire and by smoke and by vapor of darkness, close quote. It seems reasonable to suggest that Alma and Samuel, who appear to have that prophecy in mind, if not before them, are also aware that the Lord at this time of destruction would visit, quote, some with his voice because of their righteousness, close quote. Although Alma's nod to the early Nephite teaching does not itself mention thunder and lightning, it does reference fire falling on the unrighteous in Zarahemla, while using a phrase characteristic of Zenos' prophecies, more on this in a second. Further, Alma also predicts that, quote, the time is at hand, soon upon them, that whosoever bringeth forth not good fruit, probably Zenos' phrase, or whosoever doeth not the works of righteousness, the same shall have cause to wail and mourn. Alma 5, 35-36. Mormon describes the fulfillment of Alma's and Helaman's words in this similar language. Quote, and it came to pass that it, the sign of darkness, did last for the space of three days, that there was no light seen, 
There was great mourning and howling and weeping among the people continually. Yea, great were the groanings of the people, because of the darkness and the great destruction which had come upon them. 3 Nephi 8.23 Mormon reports that in the darkness and amidst the human suffering, out of heaven, quote, there was a voice heard, close quote, by the most righteous part of the people who had been spared. 3 Nephi 9.1 See also 3 Nephi 10.3 Significantly, the heavenly voice resembles in part Alma's prophetic channeling of the Good Shepherd's voice in Alma 5, 33-42, 57, 59-62. According to Mormon, while the righteous lament in utter darkness, quote, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, close quote, announces that, quote, the scriptures concerning my coming are fulfilled. 3 Nephi 9.16 Mormon has used those scriptures to prove this very point and we'll do more of that soon. The Good Shepherd characteristically invites all who have not been cut off to come unto him. 3 Nephi 9.22 See John 10.15 and 18 Mormon records his tender words of invitation, words that resemble the shepherd's voice found in the Gospel of John. Yea, verily I, the Good Shepherd, say unto you, If ye will come unto me, ye shall have eternal life. Behold, mine arm of mercy is extended towards you, and whosoever will come, him will I receive. And blessed are those who come unto me. 3 Nephi 9.14 As Mormon was apparently aware, it was Alma who declared not many decades before the following while among the church in Zarahemla and later throughout the land. Quote, Behold he, the good shepherd, sendeth an invitation unto all men, for the arms of mercy are extended towards them, and he saith, Repent, and I will receive you. Yea, he saith, Come unto me, and ye shall partake of the fruit of the tree of life. Yea, ye shall eat and drink of the waters of life freely. Yea, come unto me, and bring forth works of righteousness, and ye shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire. For behold, the time is at hand, that whosoever bringeth forth not good fruit, or whosoever doeth not the works of righteousness, the same has cause to wail and mourn. Alma 5, 33-36, see also 3 Nephi 9.13. Notice how Alma's words both allude to the dream and the vision of his fathers Lehi and Nephi and Zenos, as well as parallel those words found in 3 Nephi 9.14, see italicized words above, where the good shepherd begins to invite his bewildered sheep, who nevertheless hear his invitation in the darkness to Come unto him. The passage's use of fire and wail and mourn, in context with the fathers, including Zenos, may also suggest something of the destruction that awaits the unrepentant at the Lord's coming. At least Mormon seems to think so. Significantly, some of these phrases are rather unique in Scripture, thus making it more likely that Alma's words are adapted by Mormon, who apparently sees in them the fulfillment of Alma's prophecy and others' prophecies. From here, Alma 5, 33-36, as mentioned, Alma stresses in his sermon to Zarahemla the importance of heeding, quote, the voice of the Good Shepherd, Alma 5, 37-38. As also indicated, he seems to declare these words unto all the people of the earth, even though only his congregation in Zarahemla can hear him. Alma declares with the zeal of an angel, quote, Yea, thus saith the Spirit, Repent all ye ends of the earth, 
for the kingdom of heaven is soon at hand. Yea, the Son of God cometh in his glory, in his might, majesty, power, and dominion. I say unto you that the Spirit saith, Behold, the glory of the King of all the earth, and also the King of heaven, shall very soon shine forth among all the children of men. Alma 5.50, see also 3 Nephi 11.14, 3 Nephi 22.5. Before concluding his sermon, Alma, now considering the fires of the spiritual death, warns the church again about being, quote, hewn down and cast into the fire, Alma 5.52 and 56, exhorting them to heed the voice of the Good Shepherd, Alma 5.37-39, 41, 57, and 60. Accordingly, it seems plausible that Alma anticipates, with the Nephite church, the coming of the Lord to the Lehites and others. As stated, this claim is suggested to us by Mormon, who attempts to demonstrate over and over in his abridgment of Nephi's large plates that the sophisticated and nuanced prophecies of Alma and the prophecies of others before and after him were fulfilled at the time of the Lord's coming to the seed of Lehi. Indeed, Mormon says that the thunder and lightning and fire and darkness and wailing and mourning of the Lehites at the time of the Lord's coming are signs under the fulfilling of many of the prophets' words. Mormon explains that, quote, many prophets have testified of these things at the time of the coming of Christ. 3 Nephi 10.15 He thus exhorts us to search the scriptures and see if it is not so. See 3 Nephi 10.14 We have attempted to conduct a search of the scriptures in this paper to determine the awareness of the Nephites of the coming of Christ during the middle portion of the Book of Mormon using the sermons and teachings of Alma. It is my thesis that Alma is one of those prophets who foretold of Jesus coming to the Lehites and did so in Alma 5 and in many other places in his writings. All this has been laid out. In addition, Alma seems to have had more in mind than even that. His teachings correspond to Nephi's, Zenos's, and also are confirmed by Samuel the Lamanite and Mormon himself. This is the continuity I spoke of earlier. It is not straightforward or irrefutable in every detail, but it is discernible and has scriptural warrant. Subscribing to doctrinal continuity from Nephi to Alma, and perhaps through Mormon, on this matter of the Lord's coming to the New World, seems a very feasible stance. Conclusion In summary, near the end of Alma 5, Alma declares that according to his divine priesthood commission, he has spoken in the, quote, energy of his soul, close quote, unto, quote, everyone that dwelleth in the land, Alma 5.43. He has attempted to speak in a manner so, quote, plainly concerning the things which are to come, close quote, that his people, quote, cannot err, Alma 5.43. Alma has spoken of those sacred prophecies attributed to the fathers, Alma 5.47. He has borne witness in these terms, quote, I say unto you that I know of myself that whatsoever I have said and shall say unto you concerning that which is to come is true. Alma 5.47 All this has been Alma's duty and according to the holy calling and order. He explains, For I am called to speak after this manner according to the holy order of God which is in Christ Jesus. Yea, 
I am commanded to stand and testify unto this people the things which have been spoken by our fathers concerning the things which are to come. Alma 5.44 Alma then asks his somewhat resistant audience to consider his testimony and how it came to him. Quote, Do ye not suppose that I know of these things myself? Behold, I testify unto you that I do know that these things whereof I have spoken are true. And how do ye suppose that I know of their surety? Behold, I say unto you, they are made known unto me by the Holy Spirit of God. Behold, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things of myself. And now I know of myself, and not merely due to the Father's writings, that they are true. For the Lord God hath made them manifest unto me by his Holy Spirit. And this is the spirit of revelation which is in me. Alma 5, 45-46 In the foregoing, a good faith response to the scholars advocating for discontinuity has been attempted to further explore the intriguing observation that after Nephi, the teaching that the Lord would come among the Lehites was not widely circulated or understood. These scholars' valuable observations have prompted a deeper look into this subject and thus have inspired this project. It has been asserted here that Alma often taught that the Lord would soon come among them. See Alma 5, 7, 13, 16, and 39. Indeed, he apparently urgently attempted to prepare them for the occasion. However, Alma was careful not to make definitive claims about when or how the events would occur, much as he sets aside these issues, mysteries, about the appointed times, kinds, and numbers of the resurrection. In Alma 40. Here we have addressed concerns about problem passages in the Book of Mormon and the early and late prophecies and teachings of the fathers. In so doing, we have attempted to demonstrate from Alma's teachings at Zarahemla, Gideon, Ammoniah, and elsewhere that he was aware of and relatively clear-headed about the reality of the coming of the Lord to the new world. He even appears to have broadened that picture either by taking his cue from his ancient father's teachings, i.e. those of Zenos, Isaiah, and Nephi, or as moved upon by the spirit of revelation and prophecy. Thus Alma taught that the coming of the Lord in the first century would not only be to the Jews and the Lehites, but that it would entail a semi-universal quality and would be accompanied by angelic ministration and power and glory. This secondary claim provides a valuable perspective on Alma's teachings and the feverish prophetic and angelic activity he describes occurring in so many other parts of the earth. Because we typically associate the first coming of the Lord to the Jews in the old world with Jesus' obscurity, poverty, and meekness. And yet the prophets, including Alma, testified that the Lord's first coming was to be in great power and authority unto many. 1 Nephi 19.10-11, Alma 5.50, Alma 13.22-24, Alma 16.16.17.19-20. The King of all the earth, the Good Shepherd, would come unto the children of men, scattered among all nations. In that sense, his first century advent, or his first century advents, is a reliable pattern for the second coming, when Christ again will make multiple appearances, under various assemblies of believers expectantly waiting his arrival. No one knows the day or hour of those appearances, 
but we do know that he will come among us and others. Like the Nephite church in Alma's day, we also must prepare the way of the Lord, making his paths straight. Alma 7.19 Relatively soon he will reveal himself unto all who are spared the fires of divine judgment. See D&C 133.19-21 And as Alma taught concerning the Lord's first appearance and ministry, he will again stand among us and establish his kingdom anew. After the good shepherd manifested himself to his other sheep among the Lehites, they lived in peace and love for hundreds of years until they again, according to the prophecies, quote, dwindled in unbelief. Alma 45, 9-14, Hillman 13, 9. A similar season of peace and rest at the second coming will be ushered in for a thousand years. The Prince of Peace will reign, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Isaiah 9, 6-7. Lastly, in this study it has been suggested that Alma 5 is a prophetic warning consistent with earlier prophecies and later recorded history. Particularly in the latter part of Alma 5, it seems that Alma has in mind the ministry of the Lord to his people after his resurrection from the dead. He is represented in that part of the sermon as great in power and dominion and as striding upon the earth and establishing his universal kingdom in some first-century sense. This is apparently what Alma had learned by the Holy Spirit of God since the coming of the angel to him and his friends after their rebellions. We have seen that Alma, as a student of the Scriptures, had clearly understood that the Redeemer would come among the Jews and that he yet sought to further understand the precise nature of his ministry on earth thereafter. Alma can be seen to struggle for more precise knowledge of the events that would occur among his own people. In the course of Alma 5, we see him compelled by the Holy Spirit to declare repentance and baptism, as well as to prophesy of the coming of the Good Shepherd to his other sheep, to all those who would hear his voice and harden not their hearts in advance of his coming. We have seen that this is fulfilled at the time of the Lord's coming when Mormon emphatically points out that the prophecies concerning his coming have been fulfilled. Through the spirit of revelation and prophecy, Alma felt driven to travel throughout the Nephite lands, declaring the coming of the Lord among his people, and the urgency of setting the church in order that the people of the Lord might receive their king and shepherd, and be spared the calamities associated with that day of salvation and reckoning. There remain questions about the continuity of the prophecies concerning the Lord's coming to the Jews and his other peoples on the face of the earth after Alma. But it seems that it cannot be doubted that Alma, student of Nephi and others, taught fairly widely that the coming of the Lord would be to his own people and unto others of his sheep elsewhere on the earth. Matthew Scott Stenson holds a Ph.D. in English from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. His dissertation work centered on John Milton's intertextuality in Paradise Lost. Scott teaches composition and literature at Tennessee Tech University and serves as Stake Institute instructor. He has published articles in such journals as BYU Studies Quarterly, Christianity and Literature, and The Religious Educator. This has been a recording of According to the Spirit of Revelation and Prophecy, Alma's Prophetic Warning of Christ's Coming to the Lehites and Others by Scott Stenson, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship. Volume 55, 
2023, read by Victor Worth. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed. If it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are accredited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles on Latter-day Saint scripture can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.